Hello and welcome to the conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. And Rare's website, rare.co.uk, is turning 25. It's actually Sunday, May 14th was its actual 25th anniversary, when it first went live. And if you're not familiar with Rare's website, you might be wondering why we're discussing its anniversary on the conversation at all. I mean, have we really run out of nostalgia to mine? But if you were online and active in Rare fandom from May 1998 through, you know, some point through the buyout era, um, Rare's classic website, the one helmed by Lee Loveday, and th- that he effectually named Rareware, uh, the pun being Rareware, as in W-H-E-R-E, Rareware, as opposed to Rareware, W-A-R-E, their branding from 1994 to 2003. Um, it-, it was just as important to Rare's story as any game they released, I would argue, because not only did it give Rare a way to communicate with their fans around the world, you know, I, I call Lee Loveday the mouth of Stamper because he he is just like that dude from Lord of the Rings who uh, who meets them um, outside of Mordor. He he basically communicated all of the company's messaging at that point in time via. Rareware, and it gave us inklings of what Rare was working on long before Nintendo and then Microsoft would officially announce it. We knew about Donkey Kong 64. We we didn't know it was going to be called that, but we knew about Donkey Kong 64 months before uh, Nintendo revealed it because Lee just casually mentioned it. Oh, yeah, of course they're working on Donkey Kong. Yeah, and if you read Rareware, you would know what was up. And it, it was not just that. It, was, it wasn't just, ooh, we're getting scoops before Nintendo's press releases, before the journalists get them. It wasn't just that, but it was also just the way Lee would interact with fans in a very personable, like uh, irreverent manner. And you would also, if you're just coming in to learn more about the games, you would also get extra lore and story details you would not find in any instruction manual. Sometimes it would be joking and non-canonical, and other times there would be new clarifying information found within the pages on Rareware that you never got anywhere else. Dustin and I just mentioned this on our Character Witness Swanky Kong episode, how the whole reason why Swanky was barred from television after the events of Donkey Kong Country 2 came from Rareware. It it came from Swanky's character bio on Rareware. And you you know you don't get that anywhere else and it just it was it was more official it was more canonical because it was coming from rare rather than say nintendo power who would just you know make things up or maybe not get the full picture it kind of gave this interesting 
air of casual authority is yes. what I would say rare rareware was. Casual authority, that's great. I, I, I know, like, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about Lee Loveday on this episode because he was the mad genius behind their website up until very recently. And, you know, Lee has been a figure we've talked about quite a bit in our 10 plus years of the conversation one of the most admired figures i would say out of the entire storied history at rare and you know it it probably makes him uncomfortable for us to talk about him in that lofty status but it, i mean it's true and it's all because he was the person who was communicating with the fans every week for years you know, this, this is before social media. This is before everybody at Rare was on social media and you could just tag them and talk with them, ask them a question. And so Lee really did sort of communicate the way Rare was perceived by the fans. He was the one responsible for how we saw everything. And, uh, you know, like, he, he would just give us, you know, new canon. Oh, yeah, here, here's some canon for Bumper the Badger. And, you know, eat shit, Pottermore. I mean, Rare did it first. You know, Rare, Rare was talking. Thankfully, they never said, oh, yeah, the Kongs just shit on the floor. <laughs> but, you know, there there's never that level of, like, what the hell are you doing? It, it was all... When it was, it was clearly a joke, right? And people would still take it seriously anyway, but <laughs> then there'd usually be a clarification like we, we were tell was telling a joke. Right. When he said, like, well, we made Banjo 3, it was hidden and grabbed by the ghoulies, but none of you played it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> DK Vine probably wouldn't have adopted the tone we did as a website had Rareware not shown it was possible to be serious and reverential about games without taking them seriously and while being irreverent. You could do both. And, you know, it obviously took us a long time to strike that balance just right. We were dumb teenagers just emulating what we saw Lee do, but it was very influential. And so on this episode, we honor and celebrate the legacy of Rareware. And uh, it's, it, you know, it's going to be hard saying rareware so many times while putting that little spin Where. on it. Yeah, where? Yeah. Like, I, tr I try to do that every now and then when I talk about it just in the course of a regular conversation. Because, you know, oh, it's just want you to know I'm not talking about rareware, the branding of the studio's games from 1994 to 2003. I'm talking about rareware, the website. But... Doing that like I'm coughing up a hairball throughout this entire episode will be very, very aggravating. So I'm probably just going to call it Rareware, and you're just going to have to know I'm talking about the website. It works for me because uh, the other, the alternate spelling of Rareware, um, you gave the, the URL as rare.co.uk. Yeah. I still type in www.rareware.com. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, it still redirects um, the uh, the W A R E spelling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. They they they've kept that one locked down. More on that later. Anyway, yeah. So I'm looking forward to this. This is an episode, Cameron. You and I have talked about doing for years, and we thought we would wait 
until the right moment. And there are different permutations of discussing rareware that we can do in the future that we won't get into here. This is just more of a general celebration that we have yet to have here on the conversation. But before we get into it, I would like to quickly plug our Patreon, because DK Vine is on Patreon. It is how we keep the lights on. It is how we keep everything running, because, you know, independent Donkey Kong journalism doesn't pay for itself. Oh, no. And I want to thank all of our existing patrons. You really are wonderful. You help keep the dream alive. You know, I was crunching the numbers, Cameron, and I realized if we could get to $2,000 a month for our Patreon, then I can fully devote all of my energies to DK Vine. Not just keeping the lights on, we would own the damn power plant. So I think that's going to be my goal, my my drive, is to get to two grand a month from our patrons, because then we can really start expanding DK Vine in ways that we've only dreamed of before. So is this a pledge drive? I don't know. You can think of it like that. You're not going to get a tote bag, but you will get more great DK Vine content if we hit it. So be sure to check us out at dkvine.com forward slash Patreon or patreon.com forward slash DK Vine. Now, Patreon is the main way we keep things running here, but we are also hawking t-shirts on Public. That's right, that makes up a very, very small profit margin for us. But hey, you know, we got some great designs on Public at the moment. And I would say that our Kong College shirt, which you can find at dkvine.com forward slash merchandise or by searching dkvine on Public, our Kong College shirt titled Old School is the perfect gift for the grad in your life this graduation season. Uh, Why get them a Dr. Seuss picture book? Oh, the places you'll go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You'll go so many places. There's no opportunities unless you're a boomer. Uh, Get them a Kong College shirt, and then they can have a laugh and have a comfortable shirt to wear. the, the, The Dr. Seuss book will just gather dust. Don't do that. Get them a t-shirt. DK Vine T Public. And also, we are on Twitch at twitch.tv forward slash DKVine. We've just hit affiliate status and we're trying to grow our brand on Twitch by streaming DKU games every week. So if you like our brand of insight and analysis, you'll love it as we actually play the video games. So check us out on Twitch. All right, Cameron, we're going to talk about Rare's website today. Rare Where, that's the last time I'll do that, launched on May 14th, 1998. And the only way we know that is it's in the update section. And the only way we know that is you can still access the oldest eras of the site on Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine. It's not guaranteed to work. Not every page will function. A lot of the images don't work anymore. But you can still sort of navigate your way around, especially if you just go all the way back to the oldest snapshot in time, 
which is later in May 1998. Thankfully, a lot of the images that are broken, you can tell from context what they are because they proliferated throughout the rest of the internet. Yes, <laughs> right, right. Like, m most, most of the images from Rareware during this time were preserved by many uh, resources like DK Vine, DKC Atlas, Rare Gamer, Super Mario Wiki. Like, a lot of these images are out there, so... There's also a bit of irony. I mean, to, to clarify, even though we are, like, constantly referring to this as rareware with an H, um, this earliest iteration of the site is the only one to actually call it that. Right. Um, in other words, it, in other phases, it's just it's just Rare's web official website. And by I mean, partially, they retired the Rare W A R E branding in 2003, right before Grab by the Ghoulies launched. Banjo Kazooie: Grunty's Revenge for the GBA was the last game to have that branding, and we don't even use it on DK Vine. I know it's common for people to still refer to the studio as Rareware. Uh, refer to the games as Rareware games, but we refer to it as Rare because that's what actually the studio has always been. Rareware was just very, very evocative branding that really lodged in the brains of a generation. So, And, and you know how we know that distinction, Heil? Uh, I read about it on Rareware. I actually, <laughs> did I write in about this? So here's my biggest problem with Rareware is I, I wrote in all the time two scribes the letter column yeah you, you were functionally a character in scribes <laughs> pe pe you didn't just write in people wrote in about you yeah i know i i was very clearly uh, waving my freak flag high way back then even but i will i like i i wrote in about everything like uh, mostly related to the dku like i don't think i wrote in about perfect dark but I wrote in a, I had a lot of questions, you know, because, oh, my God, you know, I, I four years of hyper intensive fandom for this studio. And now I can just directly interact with somebody from the studio. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I, I remember I did write in and ask about it. I don't know if it was my letter that resolved this. And sometimes Lee would just write back to me. He wouldn't even run it in scribes. He would just reply to me. Because he was like, all right, I'm just going to give you the answer here. We don't need to make this your contribution to Scribes this month. But uh, <laughs> I, 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 I have a feeling like I, I wrote in about this and I, I was like, hey, you, you refer to yourself as just rare quite a bit. And I get that. But is rareware what you're actually called? Or And Lee was like, uh, rareware is the name of the games. It's what we call the games. We make rareware, but we are rare limited. And and that stuck with me, especially once we hit 2003, and they did retire the Rareware branding. But um, yeah, now it's it's kind of like I don't know a, a stickling point for me because so many people use Rareware in this derogatory way when referring to anything post Nintendo that they did, like or or they they just call it Rareware, like they don't. They haven't paid attention to the studio since 2003. So I'm like, no, it's rare. It's, it's always been rare. I, I, I love that logo as much as anybody else. I, I have lots of clothing with that logo on it. I have the big pillow of that logo. But, it, but it's rare. Just rare. It's just rare. But uh, yeah, the rare wear 
name for the site. They retired that like what? Was it 2001? Yeah, I think it was. Well, we'll, we'll get to it. But uh, the next revision of the of the site was 2001. Yeah. Like mid 2001. Yeah. So it, it, it was even before we had any notion that they might be leaving Nintendo. I know the rumors really kicked in late 2001. But yeah, it, it was... The, the, the earliest version of the site you would think would be lost to time, but it's probably the best preserved version of the site on the Wayback Machine. Yeah, the, the irony is... Um... It's the best preserved, probably one of the at least one of the best preserved because it's from such an early age of the internet that the code is basic enough that it's not bursting apart of the seams because it is not. Um, future iterations of Rare's website are rooted in, rooted in the time they were designed, so they are playing with the latest toys, mm-hmm. um, and. Some of those toys have been depreciated over the years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it was funny because when Rareware first launched in May 1998, Lee was very like proud that there's you don't need any fancy plugins to read our website. You know, it's, it's just HTML. And of course, that fell by the wayside as the years went along and more pressures to have a very modern corporate looking website grew, uh, especially, you know, after they were purchased by a major corporation. <laughs> and that said, like, I'd, I'd say Rareware still had a very clean look to it. It wasn't this is not the Space Jam website we're talking about. No, here. no. I mean, it, it was very basic, very simple, but elegant. And it it just had like wonderful navigation. Um, it had that famous banner on the top and the bottom with the spinning rareware uh, logo, the 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 rareware slab, you know. And it would just be spinning icons, and you'd always click on those to get yourself home. But uh, yeah, it, it there there's something to be said for just very simple, very practical HTML web design. I love it. I mean, even DK Vine isn't this simple anymore, you know, and uh but I don't know, like I will always have a soft spot for a well designed and they're not like Space Jam or vintage GeoCities websites, but just just something that looks professional. And gets the job done without any extra razzmatazz, you know? And that's what Rareware was. And it was always just very nice, especially in the age of dial-up. I can't stress this enough how when you were on a dial-up modem browsing the internet, you didn't want anything that would take forever to load. And it was always very, very quick getting around Rareware and getting around the different pages. And you you could devote an entire afternoon just reading the site. And it, yeah, it, it, it felt almost instantaneous, which back in that day, you know, a lot of websites weren't. I certainly appreciate it. I don't think I had high speed internet at home until 2008. Wow. Oh, wow. That's that's. Yeah, like I wasn't thought, it wasn't good. No, wasn't good. I, no, I can't imagine it was <laughs> like I 
I think it was around 2003 for me, maybe. It was still, like, I felt relatively late, especially because, you know, all my friends made fun of me for it. But once I, you know, once I got just on high-speed internet, you could actually stay online. It wasn't this whole thing where, oh, you're online. You're, you're, you're taking up the phone lines. What if somebody needs to call us? What if there's an emergency? Get off the internet. And uh, you have to log off, and, and then you're not online anymore. And then once you get on high-speed internet, once you're not on dial-up, you're like, wait, I can just be online at all times? This seems like it would be bad for my mental health, but okay. And of course, you know, now we're online in our <laughs> in our pockets, you know, where we're just carrying around the internet with us. We're never away from it. But yeah, that that was a that was a big deal back then for sure. So when we discussed rareware, I, the, the the original website, I feel like is the nucleus of it. It's the epicenter of everything. The further in time we go, um Towards the present day, the further away we get from the heart of the website as we know and celebrate it. And I, I like I, w- I wouldn't say like, oh, it was at its best when it first launched because that's you know, I'm sure there are people who say that about DK Vine. Oh, I liked it back in uh, the year 2000 uh, when you had a letters column, which was just us ripping off scribes. And, you know, I'm like, well, that that was that sucked back then because that we we're just dumb teenagers. And like, yeah, I like that. Uh, OK, um, but for me, like it was at its truest spirit before they started modernizing it. And especially like once it had to meet all of these corporate quotas of what a website needed to be and be professional. Um, but back when it was just Lee running it. <laughs> That's it. Uh, and it was his personal playpen. That, that is when it was truly rareware. I think it's also hard not to, like, not to describe it in those terms, just because like, a lot of the features and like, main like, banner stuff we remember about Rare's web presence uh-huh. was fully formed right out of the gate. Like, Scribes wasn't something that happened five years in. It was just there. Yeah, yeah. And that was so enticing for me because I found the website in July 1998. So it had been up for only like two months at that point. But it felt so fully realized. It felt so fully fleshed out when I found it that I felt like I was a late adopter. I was like, oh, I, I can't believe this has been here all this time and I didn't know about it. I, I got in relatively quickly, but it, it still felt like there was years of content that I needed to catch up on in just that short amount of time. Like, I don't know how long it took Lee to actually uh, get all these pages crafted, get all these concepts ready to go before he launched on May 14th of that year. But wow, well, once he did, it was just, it was overwhelming. Why don't we go through the more notable features of that original iteration of the website? Because I feel like we need to explain what what the main like pillars of content on Rareware actually were before we get further away um, into the history. So 
of course, the one that I think everybody lionizes and celebrates and, and really puts on a pedestal is Scribes, which was their monthly letter column where anybody could write in via email and you would occasionally get a genuine response from Lee or Lee would ask a dev, an unnamed dev usually, the the answer to your question. And at that point in time, it was the fastest way to interact with anybody at Rare. And it was always just entertaining because you never... You never knew what people were going to ask. You never knew what revelations might come about. And you never knew, like, what asshole would write in and get absolutely obliterated by Lee. (laughs) So (laughs) it it was always just a lot going on in Scribes. And, like, once I started writing in, of course, it was also thrilling for me to get into Scribes on a regular basis. Like I think I was in most months. I, I was. I, I think I had the winning streak as far as appearing in Scribes for the longest time. It's interesting to go back through the Scribes records and just, uh, like play a look and find of like how many of these people we are still in these circles today. Like you were a regular Chris Alcock was a regular chad would show up dark mark would show up yeah i like it it really was a very fast way to sort of build up this notion of a rare fan community this this was kind of the early goings of it obviously there were rare fan sites online and there were like news groups and stuff but the modern like rare fan community as we know it, just just like the the core rare fan community. I'm not even talking about like Sea of Thieves fan communities or anything, or you know, popular streamers or anything nowadays. But just what what is thought of as the online rare fan community really had its origins in this nebula that that was Scribes, where people would start recognizing each other and and. And then we would start our own websites and people would, you know, become staff writers for those websites and we would just start interacting with each other. And, you know, the amount of people on Scribes that eventually became staffers for DK Vine throughout the years, it's quite a bit. I mean, that's where we first learned of uh, Ben, uh, Ozzy Ben, who was our first I guess you could call it outside hire on DK Vine. Uh, wouldn't be the last, obviously, but yeah, in that original like era of DK Vine, when it was just me and Chad, and then we brought in somebody else, and it was Ben, and we knew of Ben from Scribes. So it really was a great recruiting tool when you wanted to um, sort of pepper the ranks of your um, output yeah it's <laughs> when you want to recruit people for your website it's a resume yeah bribes was was really just what like when, when there wasn't a particular game you wanted new information on i mean and during this era there always was but it was just as exciting to wait out the that month's installment of scribes like you would get on AOL or or whatever every afternoon after school and you would be like oh you know we're we're doing scribes any day now will today be the day we get scribes and you would go immediately to rareware and uh check it out and 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, Scribes was basically the hub of everything on Rareware, and I think it speaks volumes that out of all of these early features on the website, Scribes is the one that stuck around the longest as a concept. I mean, it, it stuck around into the 2010s, right? This isn't just like this archaic thing from the glory days of the Rare Nintendo partnership. I mean, this stuck around like into the Kinect Sports era of Rare. Yeah, it's a uh... It just like an institution and like to this day, like a lot of fans, you say scribes, they know what you mean. Yeah, there there are online archives of scribes um, just just devoted to scribes. And I think that that really just says it all. Like there there are people out there who are like all about games preservation. And then there are people who want to preserve renders and, and artwork from the games that may you know fallen by the wayside especially from rare for nintendo you know a lot of that stuff you really can't find in high quality and then you got people who are preserving the letters column on rare's website because it meant so much and it was such an illuminating source like i said we learned about Donkey Kong 64 that it was actually in development like Rumors aside, because it, it was a game that had been rumored in some form or another since late 1995. It wasn't even in development then, but the rumor mill said it was. But that we actually got it confirmed that, yes, of course, we're making Donkey Kong for the N64. Why wouldn't we? Conversely, it's really funny to go back through both the archives of Scribes and Ask, and Ask Uncle Tusk and see how many times Lee very bluntly outlined we're not working on Killer Instinct 3. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that kind of, like, upfront nature to everything was really, like, unique. I mean, not just for its time, even today. Like, you you would basically know right away, are the are you secretly working on a game? No, we're not. And they would be shut down. I mean, there would always be new people writing in who hadn't seen that, but yeah, I mean, the the two flavors of comment when you ask an official channel, are you working on unannounced thing are no or no comment, which implicitly means yes, so a lot of people don't even say no comment. Right, right. <laughs> and and like Lee was very upfront like no, Killer Instinct 3 is not in the works. Donkey Kong 64 yeah, <laughs> of course, it's Donkey Kong. Why right. not? Right. So <laughs> that, that was always so refreshing. And of course, this would kind of fly under the radar. Like, I don't think even sites like IGN really mind scribes for for stories. Like in this day and age, you know, IGN has mined the conversation for uh, clickbaity headlines in the past. Uh, but but back then, like, you would get all of this just amazing revelation after revelation, all, all of these details, and the big news sites would kind of ignore it, and it would just be our little secret between us and Rare. It, it was it was weird to in retrospect. Yeah, it's it's really this also just this vividness of We'd get a we'd get a straight answer on like a development question being asked about Banjo Kazooie because he could just walk over and ask somebody. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm sure there are times when they said stuff they probably weren't supposed to say, 
And then, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back, there were things they were still dodgy about. It's not like we got a full open and and shut, like, insight into development. Like, the whole drama around Stop and Swap, for example, when Banjo-Tooie came out and there was no actual connection between it and Banjo-Kazooie and they just had this sort of... Uh, make good ice key and question mark eggs in these N64 cartridges in the game. And we were like, okay, but where's the real connection? Like, how do you get the real ice key? And, uh, you know, like Lee never got into the details then that we now know, thanks to Paul Makachek, years after the fact, like he never got into, oh, Nintendo shut this down uh, because, you know, you don't want to upset Nintendo. And so there were times when they did, play nice and and not actually like get into everything but yeah they're, they're it, it's just amazing like how plugged in we felt as a fan community and of course we were kept at arm's length you know it, it was lee basically acting as sort of the filter for everything going both ways and even when you were kept at arm's length and not totally let in on something you usually get a fun pithy response about it yeah and that, so. that was always fun too i i know like the the other year, uh, I, I tagged Lee in, in something on social media, just lauding him, as I occasionally like to do. I don't do it too often because I know it probably makes him uncomfortable. But, you know, I, I, I was feeling nostalgic and I was like, hey, Rare, Rare, the website was great. And, you know, he, he, he said something like along the lines of some I, I looking back, I might re- regret the tone I took with some people. Um, personally, I loved when he would be snarky with me. I'd be like, oh, you, (laughs) it it, it always felt in good nature. Like, like occasionally people would write it who would be complete and utter assholes and, and they deserved a good public thrashing. But, (laughs) you know, you, you could usually tell when he was just being dryly sarcastic with you. It's an impressive type rope to walk, I think, yeah. to be like sardonic but not cruel. Right. Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, but, you know, Scribes was the epicenter of everything, but there was so much more to the website than just Scribes. There were other ways we could actually write in and interact with Rare, and probably the biggest way that Lee sort of seeded control at the time, was via uh, an irregular feature called the tepid seat. Not the hot seat, the tepid seat. I'm embarrassed how long it took me to get that that was a pun on hot seat. Oh yeah, I I didn't understand it at first either. There were a lot of learning curves with Lee's writing because I was a sheltered American youth who didn't really have much exposure, you know, outside of my home country at the time, and and so there are a lot of uh, Britishisms, Englishisms, UKisms that just went over my head, uh, or or I I would misinterpret the meaning, and you know, occasionally, you know, eventually I I would get caught up to speed. But e- even like stuff like the tepid seat, which should be a very obvious pun on hot seat, it's not the hot seat, it's it's uh, t- it's tepid, it's lukewarm. Uh, I didn't I didn't get that right away it, it took me a while also like another it, it's kind of evocative another co- key component of rare's web presence and also just lee's writing in general which is dripping with self-deprecation yes 
Exactly, exactly. Because these would be questions that would be solicited um, and, and then, I guess, filtered down to a team at Rare for a specific game. So generally, after a game comes out, there would be some a period of time where then Lee would open up the tepid seat for a particular game. Okay, you got, here's your hard-hitting questions. Like, we're, we're just going to bypass scribes and that whole routine. We're just going to take these questions directly to the team. And, of course, Lee would cultivate the ones he felt were best and then bring them to the team. And then the team would answer. And we would get some insight. And, you know, nowadays people would just tag Greg Mails or, or whatever, um, ask him to come on their podcast, you know. But back then, when the stampers were so secretive and we didn't even know the full names a lot of a lot of the devs because they wouldn't even give their full names in the credits for fear of other studios poaching them. Um, I don't really agree with that, Chris and Tim Stamper, but all right. It, it's an ugly practice that's around the industry back yeah. then. It's not great. Yeah. But anyway, so, so we would even know like the full identity of a lot of these people behind the games, but yeah, Lee would, would, bring them these questions, and we would get answers. And so that was the Tepid Seat. And Tepid Seat, I think, was one of the features in that, in a way, got more fascinating the longer it ran because, like, yes, everybody wants to get answers about Banjo-Kazooie and GoldenEye, but, like, the the later into the Rare's career, like, they they weren't interviewed very often about Grab by the Ghoulies to tell these sort of development stories. People don't bring Greg Mails and Steve Malpass onto their podcasts to talk about Grab by the Ghoulies for three hours. Incidentally, Greg Mails and Steve Malpass, if you'd like to come on the conversation and talk about Grab by the Ghoulies for three <laughs> yeah. hours, I would or be, more. I would be all for that. <laughs> uh, you know, twentieth anniversary is coming up. You know how to reach me. But yeah, thanks to that, we we have stories about and answered questions about working on grab by the ghoulies we have q a with the rare handheld team um jet force gemini team the cameo mm-hmm. like it, it just kind of became this neat repository for information you're not you weren't really going to find anywhere else exactly yeah honestly like for me like the tepid seat was interesting i, I wrote in a few times but I I I don't know. Like for me, like scribes was really where my interests lie. I guess because I just didn't have enough faith in myself to ask a really good question uh, of of the teams. And with Lee, I knew what to expect. So uh, for me, that was just like I I have social anxiety to a degree. I I didn't realize it at the time, but I do. So for me, like. Once I I felt like Lee was um, a fun presence to interact with, I sometimes I just wanted to leave it at that. Like I I, di- I didn't want to hassle anyone else, even if Lee was the one doing the filtering through. Like it's like oh, yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to concern them with my questions. They're stupid, but I don't mind asking Lee and Scribes some other time. You know, so. The the tepid seat, I it didn't really pull me in like the others, but it was always fun to read once they were published. You, you say you had social anxiety. At least you wrote in. Um, I never wrote in describes because I just was too terrified to or didn't have anything to ask. Um, 
I did write into Rare once. Uh, more more on that later. <laughs> so we 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 talk about scribes being the most reverential thing from the website, but it's probably not the most lasting influence the website has had on the broader Rare fandom or or just video games in general. Because that came in the form of a fairly innocuous thing. You you wouldn't expect this aspect of the site to be as impactful as it was. But because of the nature of how Lee presented it, it would have great ramifications for Rare, the shared Rare universe, the Donkey Kong universe. It was the site survey section. The site survey section was just a form where you could give feedback on the site. And you, and you say, like, site survey section. Well, what's, what's special about that? So and, and this, <laughs> this is just the, I, I think, the sense of humor that Lee had, that this kind of cheekiness where I can't just have a feedback section for the site. Uh, I, I need to make it fun. I need to make it engaging. I need to entice and delight and stoke the fires of imagination. So I'm going to have a mascot for the site survey section. <laughs> uh, some some person holding a clipboard getting your feedback. And I'm going to make him as shit as possible. I'm going to put the least amount of effort into this character I believe Lee, Lee drew him in MS Paint, if I'm not mistaken. It looks like it was drawn in MS Paint. And it, it was this very janky-looking, um, half-nude man uh, wearing nothing but his underpants and a bowler hat named Mr. Pants the Survey Man. <laughs> and, of course... Anybody who listens in on the conversation on a regular basis or has read DK Vine will know of Mr. Pants. We have not let you forget about Mr. Pants because Mr. Pants, of course, would go on to become a canonical rare character and a part of the DKU. And of course, once he did that, like his design was polished up a little bit. When I say <laughs> polished up, don't worry, he still looks like garbage. Here, because I have some notes pulled up, I actually have a response from lee when somebody wrote in describes asking who mr pants was oh is. Okay. sure um mr pants is a character i quote produced in about 30 seconds one day when it became obvious that none of our artists had the spare time to put together a new render of an existing rare character for the survey page <laughs> since his international debut many people have criticized mr pants for being quote crap and quote badly drawn they are correct. <laughs> what I what I love is Mr. Pants. This is this is something that went over my head as a kid. Like pants is is slang for crap, right? Like he's a rubbish character, Mr. Pants. But he's also just in his underpants. This also requires you to know the difference culturally between saying pants and in the UK versus in the US. Right, right. It would be what we called pants here would be trousers over there. So, yeah, you, you got this pasty, doughy Englishman in a bowler hat and a mustache 
with his nips out and proud. And, you know, looking at this original MS Paint doodle of Mr. Pants with the clipboard that appeared on Rareware, I can't help but be drawn to the massive bulge <laughs> that's on display. <laughs> it's it's just, it's just, it's, it, it's so loud, Cameron. I mean, how did I never notice this when I was a kid? How did I never just stare at this? I, I can't look away. Cameron, it's on our key art for YouTube and SoundCloud for this episode, and I just keep glancing at it. I'm like, yep, that's Mr. Pants' dick, all right. I mean, I just took it as, like, this is a consequence of him being as flatly drawn as he is that his wife runs just look like they were pressed on an ironing board, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, of course, we'll talk a little bit more about Mr. Pants throughout this episode. Mr. Pants would be the longest-lasting influence in all of Rare w- w- when it comes to the impact this website had. But I think we could genuinely do a Spotlight episode on Mr. Pants. This character, like, grew into his own so much. Grew it, grew into his own, <laughs> developed a whole mythology around them that intertwines with the DKU. Like, there, there's a whole region in the DKU called Pantsland, for Christ's sake. Um... I love Mr. Pants, and my affection for Mr. Pants has only grown, just just like Mr. Pants grows, apparently. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like it, it all started in this very very small way, and, and I'm sure Lee had no idea that <laughs> his his little joke of a character would eventually helm his own game, a game that not many people have played, granted, but still, like. He he would go on to create a lasting rare character. I mean that that's pretty impressive for a website from 1998. Well, speaking of characters, I I would say aside from Mr. Pants, there's also <laughs> another mascot of the early days of Rare's website that isn't really an original character it's more of an inappropriated mascot yeah it's more of a new spin on an existing (laughs) rare ip and it it had the effect where i can't think of this character now without first thinking of the version from rare's website in fact whenever we talk about killer instinct Killer Instinct 2 or the modern day Killer Instinct uh, 2013, I always inevitably refer to this character as Uncle Tusk rather than just Tusk. Because to me, this character is Uncle Tusk. That's his name. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. (laughs) That was just from the website. He's just Tusk. He's not actually a columnist that, that angrily responds to people. We should probably, like, clarify exactly what this is. So, he's referred to on the site as Uncle Tusk because what Ask Uncle Tusk was on Rareware was Rare Spin on, like, the Agony Ant column. Yes. Or, like, what you might know is, like, a Dear Abby column. Yeah. And and an advice column. Sure. Where readers would write in about questions about rare games like ostensibly kind of like their version of a a tip line but Mm -hmm. you would also get development questions as well and the the lines kind of blurred a little bit between 
like the purposes of this and the purposes of scribes a bit, but the key conceit of Uncle Tusk that made it stand on its own and made it so memorable was um, all of these questions that people wrote in asking for help with their, uh, quote the page, rare gaming problems. They were answered in character by Tusk from Killer Instinct 2. And because they were answered in character, you know, there's not a lot to go on about Tusk in Killer Instinct 2, but he is like a very like Conan the Barbarian style, like archetype, big muscle bound dude with a giant sword and a loincloth. Yeah. And so because this column was run by him, Tusk would answer Tusk's personality. He was boorish, rude, and actively antagonistic to his readership. So when people would write him in, he would just kind of roast them with insults, be generally generally rude to them, um, and uh, occasionally threaten them with violence. <laughs> <laughs> Which you could not get away with. Pretty much at any point online after like the turn of the millennium. Like this was a very narrow window where a studio (laughs) could threaten its audience with violence and have it be played off for laughs. Like, of course this is one of the the things they retired first during the long history of Rare's website. But for a time, oh yes, you could have a killer instinct two character uh, threaten you with bodily harm. And to be clear, it was like heightened. Um, like he would he would reference having a one of one of the he would reference sharpening his axe or <laughs> um th- there's an offhand mention of him having something called the big stick of good behavior <laughs> imply yeah. you know like a a baseball bat right. yeah <laughs> i I never wrote in uncle tusk I don't think i did i I was too intimidated by uh by uncle tusk um <laughs> Nor nor did I really, like, ever want any game advice from Rare. Like, I was always more interested in lore or, you know, like, divining what the future might hold. I was not interested in, uh, hey, I, I can't get this one jiggy in Banjo-Kazooie. Can you help me out? That that wasn't what I used Rare's site for. So I never never had the, the itch to, to write into Uncle Tusk. But... I I enjoyed reading Uncle Tusk. You know, I wasn't the biggest Killer Instinct fan back in the day, so it, it was more just an amusing diversion to to read this column and and to see Lee as this barbarian character just going on. It, it, it like you, it's it's completely colored the character for me. Even though, like, obviously this wasn't referenced in Ki Two because it came out before Uncle Tusk was a thing. And it's not really acknowledged in KI 2013 either. Like, the closest thing I think we've got is Lee responding to a a post about Tusk on Twitter saying, he's got a beard now, that hipster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, like, I, I, when I said, like, there were, there were things that would, like, inform the canon on Rare's website, I, I wasn't actually including Uncle Tusk. Because this was very clearly a sort of cheeky take on a character. But it still very much has informed my opinion of the character. So much so that now that Killer Instinct 2013 is recognized as being DKU, I, I look at him and I'm I'm just like, 
yeah, I, I, I could see him. I, I could see him being this, this Uncle Tusk character, this, this advice giver, and just it, it, it's an obvious joke. Like if you're gonna take any rare character from this era and do the agony ant column, and, and like what would be the funniest take on that? And having it be the big Conan the Barbarian brute who, who just lives for violence. That's yeah, of course, just you know, it's low hanging fruit, but it's well worth picking. And we, we, there is like a nugget of canonicity to him that I'm gonna run with, which is one of the novelty loading screens in Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, which unfortunately, slash fortunately, go on. You, you can't read them in Rare Replay because the loading times are slim to nil in that game on, on modern hardware. One of them says, just says if you're still like because the loading screens give you hints in in a rotation one of them advises if you're still stuck quote uh, t- time to follow uncle tusk's old adage and stop being so rubbish yeah right so yeah Mimi M- M- tusk does refer to himself as uncle tusk at times and uh <laughs> Of course, there is all, all of this mythology around um, Uncle Tusk as well that you have appropriated for your cat in Sea of Thieves. Yeah, do we do we want to detour and talk about the lore of Tusk? Um, since unlike Mr. Pants, I don't think he ever is going to get a spotlight episode. No, no. So I, I think, yeah, now's the time if you want to talk about Sniffles. <laughs> all right. Well, so as a consequence of this Agony Ant column, we did get some information about Tusk sort of bleeding back into into his responses. And some of this was goaded from the readership, like basically get like asking a loaded question to get Lee to respond in character in a way that would like reinforce or reject what they said. So here's just a selection of things we learned about Tusk. Um, him and Mr. Pants have an arrangement where, um, Mr. Pants provides him his undergarments. He learned how to chop heads from playing Barbarian on the ZX Spectrum. His marriage to Maya is tense, and she might be cheating on him with TJ Combo. In a series of messages, we learned that she um, goes out for late-night work se- workout sessions with TJ Combo and comes back at 3 a.m. exhausted. <laughs> Anyway, the end of that arc in a in a follow up letter was uh, Tusk eventually says that uh, she doesn't go to TJ Combo's gym anymore since it quote since it burned down ha 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 <laughs> yeah that, that it's great like and uh, of course like I'm sure like, hardcore Killer Instinct fans like over at Ki Central or whatever. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't pay any mind to this. But, of course, like, now that we have this one Killer Instinct game in the DKU, we're like, hmm, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, I can see this for sure, yeah. Yeah, it, and also it influences uh, Tusk appearance in IDARP, that DKU classic. So you can definitely, like, have a little bit of... Um, is, is TJ Combo in IDARP? I forget. I know Tusk is. Genuinely forget, I'll need to check that. <laughs> I know that it's generally centered around the KI2 cast, yeah, but yeah. TJ Combo is in that. Right. Um, 
But anyway, I'm burying the lead here. Um, maybe the most recurring bit to come out of Uncle Tusk was his pet cat, Sniffles. Mm-hmm. So the context of Sniffles is at one point, Tusk received a letter and I, I'm pretty sure this, how, how, how this went about, I believe is just one person got this idea and wrote this in. Uh, Tusk received a letter from the Hammerdale veterinarian hospital (laughs) (laughs) telling him that he needs to pick up his cat it has been 14 and a half years. <laughs> he, he owes over $4,000 in bills. And if Tusk does not come to pick him up within 24 hours, they are going to leave the cat at the county dump in a garbage bag. <laughs> uh, uh, reputable uh, institution. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the Tusk fed the story. We learned that Sniffles is a very sickly cat, implausibly geriatric. I'm 27 years old. Established in this very first response. Uh-huh. Um, and very mucusy. Like, Tusk does not seem to want, want him back. And in light of this letter... Sniffles kind of became this like reader fueled PASA story. Uh huh. Yeah. Where he, through letters that people submitted, kind of went on this increasingly implausible series of misfortune slash adventures. I'll just uh, recount briefly all of the things that befell Sniffles that I could find. This in my trawling through the archives of Uncle Tusk. This is just what you could find. There may be more. Right. So, um, he was sent to the dump in a garbage bag. The employees couldn't bring themselves to crush him in, quote, the garbage cruncher. <laughs> so, they sent him to the Falkland Islands to be incinerated by means of a nuclear bomb. Uh, that was followed by a letter describing that Sniffles had eaten the entire arsenal of armed test bombs and became a mutated giant cat capable of speech, expressing that he uh, wanted revenge on Maya due to, quote, repeated kicks to the head during kittenhood, which was revealed in Tusk's response to have actually been him in a wig and bikini. (laughs) Uh, He then stepped on a house and caused a septillion dollars worth of damage to the Falkland Islands Museum. He was in car... Because Tusk didn't pay damages for this, and Sniffles continued to wreak havoc, he was incarcerated and uh, deemed to be put to death. But um, they tried to kill him via the electric chair, which only intensified his mutation turning him into a 200-foot kaiju with extra limbs and telepathic powers. This was followed by a letter written from the perspective of Sniffles himself, now able to express his thoughts in English, and uh, expressing he was picking up Swahili and had the goal of going to Africa. Uh, this is where he tells Tusk about he him hearing that Maya was in America with TJ Combo, and uh, that raid the 
radiation is apparently causing people, uh, causing things to melt in his presence. Sniffles uh, wrote in a second time, uh, expressing that he wanted to come back home to Tusk. His feelings were hurt by people calling him a, quote, mutant kitty and a, quote, radioactive catastrophe. <laughs> um, and as a, like, welcome home gift, a coming home gift for Tusk, he planned to come home and present him with uh, Tip Tup and Cranky Kong captured in a plastic bag. <laughs> and uh, warn tu- <laughs> uh, warning Tusk that like, hey, you shouldn't touch me because you might get horribly sick. And then Tip Tub and Cranky would have to take over the letter writing column. Uh, to which Tusk responded that he should chuck Tip Tub and Cranky in a river and go stay with Aunt Gertie, who is quote off her head. Then Sniffles was found frozen in the Arctic by scientists. In his, in his last known whereabouts, scientists attempted to clone him, not knowing what he was, um, resulting in about two dozen sniffle clo- Sniffles clones rampaging across the globe. A subsequent letter from Sniffles, uh, well, Sniffles number four, one of the clones, wrote in saying he seemed to be demutating back into a normal cat. Basically, the amount of things that had happened to him had just completely demolished his DNA. Um, he'd already lost multiple limbs, eyes, the ability to speak Spanish, and uh, asked if Tusk could prefer a freezing chamber for him. And then the final letter was uh, Sniffles writing in, saying he had stopped demutating and regained his full memory. He no longer needs a freezing chamber, but he's asked for fresh litter for the first time in six years. He is also still radioactive, has developed eye beams, and uh, ate another recurring character in the Uncle Tusk column, Sean Williamson. Now, who is Sean Williamson? So, Sean Williamson was a real person who wrote into Uncle Tusk, and this is this is kind of the thing with with all with all of Rare's website is just you would have these running jokes that kind of got absorbed by the collective that was writing in, so they would just come up all the time. Yeah. Uh Sean Williamson was a real person who wrote into Uncle Tusk for the purpose that Uncle Tusk was created for to ask for game advice, asking for help uh bettering his clear times for archives in Goldeneye so he could unlock the invisibility cheat. Yeah. Saying the best he could manage was four minutes and 13 seconds. And then, partially because they'd already given, like, hints and tips for GoldenEye elsewhere on the site, Tusk roasted him for, quote, having a seriously crap time, and then proceeded to, in responses to to the rest of the people who were writing in in that iteration of Uncle Tusk, Roasted him repeatedly throughout other answers, just bringing him up over and over again. And he became a running joke with the leadership, uh, with with, with the readership. Uh Uh-huh. Did he ever write in again? Not that I could find. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, you know, because, like, like you mentioned, like, a lot of people in Scribes would just become, like, characters, like like me, you know, um, once upon a time. But yeah, Sean Williamson became a character, a running joke at the very least. 
poor guy just wrote it once. Um, and, you know, but th- that's the kind of not that I necessarily condone like taking a real person and, and their real name and, and making a joke out of them. Like, that's not something I would do nowadays. But back in the mindset of 1998. I totally get that. And that's the kind of thing that I usually just take something like very, very innocent, innocuous, and you snowball it into absurdity. And and that's the kind of humor that I've always found endearing is you take something very relatively benign and you just keep at it until it's hit this (laughs) hit this ludicrous level that you can't even explain to any newcomers. Yeah, it. I even found a response uh, to a letter you wrote that mentioned Sean Williamson. Oh, so I don't even remember half the stuff <laughs> I wrote in about or the responses I got. It's all a blur. Yeah, so I don't want to do too much uh, verbatim letter reading from Scribes because, one, I think it just makes this an arduous episode. And two, I recommend people just look up the archives of these themselves. And we'll probably do a Scribes episode in the future, honestly. So. So, um, this is from April 29th, 1999. Oh my god. Dear Scribes, what is the present state of the pants industry in your Donkey Kong Country games? Both (laughs) Donkey Kong and Diddy never wear pants. Neither does Dixie Kong and Cranky Kong. But for some reason, Funky Kong always wears pants. (laughs) And Swanky Kong wore no pants in DKC2, but in DKC3, he wore the pants. Apparently, pants are not required in basic society for the video game community of Donkey Kong and Pals, but can be worn if desired. But if so few apes wear pants, how can a pants maker stay in business on DK Island? (laughs) They would surely go bankrupt by the end of their first year. Do the apes import the pants from somewhere else? And if Hmm. so, what do they export in exchange for the pants? Please respond, because frankly, this has been bugging me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so can i just say right now cameron i was worried when you started reading a letter that i wrote in 1999 to scribes but right now i've got tears in my eyes because i am so proud of little baby me for asking the important questions this is a good letter oh my god oh so well, i'll read the response Last month, Diddy's feces. This month, Swanky's pants. You're a sick man, slush. But while I'm here, I suppose I may as well have a crack at it, ho-ho. For a start, Funky's a wicked surfer dude, so by default, he always has to be wearing stupid shorts. As for the others, I don't imagine they feel any particular everyday pant requirement. Wandering around semi-naked is a step up from most monkeys, really. Swanky was on tour in DKC3, so he probably threw a pair of pants on just in case he bumped into anyone of a more sensitive species. Don't know where the modest Kong clan pants supply actually comes from, though. Perhaps they get them from the Kremlings, in return for sending them some of the less immediately useful members of their family over to work as slaves. You know, Thickly Kong. Dribbly Kong, Sean Williamson Kong, <laughs> all that lot. <laughs> oh my god, so that's where Sean Williamson Kong comes from. Because that, that like, that's brought up every so often, and I'm like, I do not remember that joke. 
I don't know. I do not know where that joke comes from. And then, okay, so it was it was in response to me. Oh, okay, I got it now. I remember. Um, thanks, Lee. Uh, so, just to follow up on Lee's response to my question from twenty four years ago, I actually have an answer to nineteen ninety nine Heil from 2023 Heil. So we do know that there are two sources <laughs> for underpants in the rare archipelago. This was established in Banjo-Tooie. Grunty Industries makes underpants and they're a big supplier. However, I would say probably the most predominant supplier of pants is in fact Mr. Pants. He's a model for pants, yes, but he's also a manufacturer. And Mr. Pants pants are probably the most popular pants in the rare archipelago. I know I, being an American in 1999, was talking about pants as in trousers, but I'm just talking about underpants at this point. Anyway, we see in Ukulele a platonic game that still acknowledges the shared canonicity of all of this. We see that Yuka has a catalog from what is implied to be Mr. Pants' pants company. So, um, there you go, me from 24 years ago. I hope that helped. And, and now I really want to make Sean Williamson Kong canon in some way. Like, I, I already made Pepito Kong somewhat canon in Sea of Thieves. He's got to be in the Mario movie <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, that's the bouncer that, that, that meets them. Um <laughs> Cameron, your cat in Sea of Thieves is Sniffles, and you've worked it out in your head so it's still canon with everything that happened to Sniffles in Ask Uncle Tusk. Yeah. Th- yeah, this is why I was able to just track down all of these mentions of Sniffles, because when Rare added cats as a pet you could buy in the game, but because a lot of people had already been doing, I mean... I know how we run in our circles. We'd already been doing cheeky references to to things. Like you had already got Pepito Kong down on lock. Yeah. Um I thought like I want to do something similarly just super indulgent. So when they added cats, I got the idea I I'm gonna put a cap on this running gag. I'm gonna keep it going one more time and get a cat in game and name it Sniffles. And I'm going to go back and cross-reference all this lore written about Sniffles and make sure this makes sense. And and luckily for me, the last few bits implied Sniffles was returning to plausibly a normal-looking cat. So I picked the... I went into the, the pet store, picked a cat that I thought looked um, plausibly, like, geriatric and grumpy enough to to be sniffles which was um i'm trying to remember the the type of cat um that it it was um ragamuffin yeah yeah ragamuffin it's a it's like a graying cat that has like essentially has a mustache and angry eyebrows like in its fur pattern and i i look at that and i think okay that that's that sniffles yeah so I bought that cat, named it Sniffles, and I tweeted 
at rare in character as my pirate a response which i didn't get a response to this tweet but i feel like it's just well to make it a sniffle part of the sniffles arc you have to put it in writing Mm -hmm. so this is what i wrote down dear uncle tusk we believe we've acquired your cat through a crooked merchant as we can't find you the hardy critter now resort resides aboard our pirate vessel do find us sometime in the next few centuries if you'd like him back. <laughs> Rage and Regal of the Dreadfully Evil. Yeah. And I even made sure that in-game um, I bought Sniffles through the Merchant Alliance shopkeeper Ebenezer, who is framed in-game as one of the more unscrupul- unscrupulous merchants. Um, he's the one who sold an invisible parrot. <laughs> yep. Good. Good job, Cameron. I feel like just what once pets were added to the game, we all had to get our self-indulgent canon inserts in there somehow. Like you did sniffles. You 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 made this cat character from the Uncle Tusk column. I did Pepito Kong, this joke Kong example on DK Vine, but made him a like semi-canonical Kong. You know, like oh here yeah here we go he, here he is. Uh, Shane, our, our friend Shane Marches, introduced a parrot and named it Heil to force <laughs> the canon that my pirate ancestor first learned of the name Heil from this parrot. Ergo, I am named after a parrot. Um, so yeah, we, I feel like we're we're all in the same wavelength, just just different permutations of it. Like, how can we most impact? the shared universe through our pets like we all have the same illness the same sickness and i feel like it's all a result of reading this crap in our youth (laughs) it absolutely is um so those were the big i i think uh reoccurring sections on rare's website but the bulk of the website was actually stuff like their games pages where you could just like I said, devote an entire afternoon or more just going through all of the the back pages, the back matter of the website. This, I think, is it's it's the kind of stuff you would come to the website for if you weren't in on the bit. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I think once you were a regular and you you were part of the 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 in crowd that would get the the jokes and the humor. Once you were an addict. It was the other stuff that kept you coming back. But this is the stuff that really made you drop, drop your jaw at first and be like, whoa, they, they have like a page for everything on this website. This is amazing. And like, this is where I learned about Rare, like the actual history of Rare, because up until this point, I didn't know exactly, you know, what their story was. Like eventually I would, you know, play a game. And it'd be like, whoa, like, Rare did this game? This, this old game on the NES? Rare did this? Whoa, Rare was behind Battletoads? How did I not know this? But this is where it would all be shored up, and I would get, like, my full education in all things Rare. And, like, it, I can't underline this enough for our readership who might not remember a simpler time, or listenership who might not remember a simpler time. I'm getting it screwed up because we're talking about a website. This was an age before you could just Look this up on Wikipedia. There was no Wikipedia. There was no YouTube. There was no social media. 
So basically, you've relied on websites that other people built. And I know that doesn't sound convenient. That doesn't sound... Um, like in, in this instant information age where we can just pull out a phone from our pockets and be like, oh, there's the answer. That's the historical fact I was looking for. Uh, back then, you had to do the research and it had to be provided to you. And this was just an invaluable resource of all things rare. And it it really did make me go from, oh, I, I, I'm a fan of rare because of the DKU to, oh, I am a fan of Rare because they are rare. I mean, this this is, like, I, I know Donkey Kong Country is what got me on board with Rare because Donkey Kong Country was the game I'd been waiting for my entire life. But it, it was still mostly, like, oh, I like Rare because they make Donkey Kong Country or, oh, I like Rare because they make Diddy Kong Racing. I like Rare because I like Banjo-Kazooie. This is really what made me appreciate Rare for being Rare. And um, it was just an important final step in my evolution from being a Nintendo fan who liked the rare games the best to a rare fan who still buys Nintendo systems because that's what Donkey Kong is on because rare made Donkey Kong. Um, so like the, the whole history with ultimate, like the studio's pre-existence as ultimate play the game stuff that we as Americans would have no understanding of at this point in time because we didn't have the spectrum over here we did not have access to any of these games unless you knew somebody who imported stuff like this like this was not on our radar at all (laughs) the first time i saw us ever saw a spectrum in person was january 2020 when you and me saw a broken one at magfest yeah and then it released covid on the world uh it (laughs) It, it it really was like it was very broken. Yeah, it was <laughs> like be, because of Rare's website. I knew who Saberman was before he showed up in Banjo Tooie. Had I just been playing Banjo Tooie Cold, I'd be like, "Am I supposed to know this guy?" But because I was a reader of Rareware, I knew exactly who Saberman was. Yeah, and uh, something I appreciate with this even today, is that Rare's chronicling of their games on Rareware was comprehensive and unfiltered. Um, so, like, that, the, the game pages were kind of split into two main sections, which were retro and recent. And uh, by recent, I mean from 1994 onward, because... Time is an abyss. I I, I Um, shared that on social media the other day when we started breaking down this episode. (laughs) Because, you know, we we were both doing our independent research. And, you know, I pulled up the recent page on on Rare. It's 1994 to the future. And it's like (laughs) Perfect Dark wasn't even released yet. Perfect Dark was like their newest game on there. They were still advertising 12 Tales. 12 Tales. An upcoming project. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's really pressing that in the perfect dark description on this page, it says, you know, circa 2023, because that's the year Perfect Dark (laughs) takes place in. At a time when Perfect Dark wasn't even released. Perfect Dark, the game itself, was in the future. And and the setting of Perfect Dark is the current year we are in. The, The day that we are recording this episode... In the timeline of Perfect Dark, 
we are one day away from the last thing that happened in game in perfect dark oh my god and now we will have no understanding of what's to come the future this is the last thing we know that happens in the future cameron after that it's uncharted territory no the the mayan calendar ran out and by that i mean mayan like elvis the alien the, yeah, no, I, I, you mean Mayan uh, Tusk wife. <laughs> she she left her calendar at TJ Combos. Yeah, and it burned up in the fire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, I guess did, what I mean by like unfiltered and comprehensive was it wasn't just the highlight reel of Rare's catalog. It was an attempt to chronicle everything they worked on. And I mean, just from the most obscure, like a licensed schlock that they did on the NES, basically. Right. Um, and stuff you just wouldn't hear brought up except to make a joke about like, um, the, the, L- the LJN who framed Roger rabbit game. Um, Taboo, the sixth sense, anticipation. Anticipation. This is where this is where the cult around anticipation's box art first formed. Be- for those who don't know what anticipation is, anticipation was a video, uh, like board game that Rare made for the NES, and it has the most striking box art of, of basically like late eighties yuppies all gathered around, looking like they're having just. The, the most marvelous yet scintillating time one could have. And it, it's it's just the cheesiest, like, most of the era, like, snapshot you could possibly obtain. And in particular, um, the Rare fandom latched onto uh, who we'd collectively know as Yellow Shirt Guy. Yellow Shirt Guy, right. And- who is... It, this is like a photo that has a bunch of people in a singular group shot, but there is one man in the top right corner sort of floating above everyone else, um, coming in from the side of the composition with a intense gasp on his face. Right. He looks shocked at whatever is happening. Like everybody else is looking like, oh my, this is so much fun. He looks like he's terrified. <laughs> Yeah, that was another really cool part about this. Wherever possible, there were scans of the box art in this right. archive. Yeah, it, so it, it, like I feel like the first time that Lee's fastidious nature like ran up against the wall of uh, like uh, rights issues was when Disney asked them to pull all of the artwork for the for the N sixty four. GBC era Disney games, the Mickey Speedway USA and what have you. Like Yeah, there's like documented apologizing for not having Mickey's Speedway USA content on the website. Because he did have that content up there and then all of a sudden it just went away because uh the the house of the mouse said you can't use our images without they made the game, but you know. You've got a barbarian threatening people on this website. We can't associate with this. Right. And then I said, oh, all these people who want me to declare the Mickey Speedway USA's DKU because of the rare cow? No. No. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it 
where where he could like he definitely wanted to present the ultimate no pun intended chronicle of rare's history and i i mean he succeeded like i really felt like this is where my understanding what rare truly was blossomed and um yeah i mean like i i don't know if if i would ever learn this stuff if it hadn't been for rareware at least you know the pre-1994 history he even had a section detailing canceled rare projects on the limbo page oh right and it had the actual banjo kazooie skeleton limbo on it (laughs) that's right yeah 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 uh it had it had a description of meyer mare and the box art that we have is like widely circulated around the internet had a sections on Wrestle Rage and Exterminator, which I would not have known about if not for him detailing this. And like a brief section with early development info back when Killer Instinct was brute force. Um, with like some early renders and detailing some of the like earlier rejected character names they were floating around. Like um uh, the the most funny one is um TJ Combo going under the name Mr. Fist. (laughs) (laughs) You have to say, for all the people who scoff at the name Killer Instinct, it's like this very, like, I I don't know, cringeworthy, like, 90s sort of game title. Brute Force. Oh, my God. Like, that's... Yeah, that's that's a game that has its own serial. Yeah. (laughs) That's just a notch above Primal Rage. Um, Yeah, like... It, it, it just thinking about the limbo page, you know, just think of had he kept that going, all the games he could have added to it over the next 10 years. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what a depressing thought. Yeah, which Rare Replay, thankfully, got into some of it, not all of it that, you know, they couldn't get into all of the Donkey Kong stuff. But but yeah, I mean, like I said, like this, this was just a great look at all the history before Donkey Kong Country that a lot of the fans like us. Who, who were coming in as, as newly minted Rare fans wouldn't have known about or we w- wouldn't have realized Rare was behind that game. Like, they did a lot of licensed stuff. You know, I think Battletoads was the first game that, you know, in, in the Rare era that was really theirs, you know. But, and but made with the stated goal of having something that could be their baby. Uh, but yeah, of course... When you first go to Rare's website, or when you would first go to Rare's website back in 1998, you would be clicking on the recent tab because you would be most interested in everything from 1994 onward. Recent games like Donkey Kong Country. You know, I still think of it as a recent game. I don't care. <laughs> I feel no shame. Um, it, it's always recent in my heart. and It keeps getting re-released, so it's technically always recent. Yeah. But th- th- this is great because you would have such a fully fleshed out treasure trove of text. Some of it would be expanded on from the instruction manual. Like a lot of, a lot of the Donkey Kong Country ones, it was Lee rewriting the story from the instruction manual, like rewriting the story written by Dan Allison from the original Donkey Kong Country or expanding on his own text from like the Donkey Kong Country 2 instruction manual. And so you would get like a, a more in-depth fleshed out version 
of the DKC stories than you would get that, that you know edited for brevity in the instruction manual. And um, I mean, like it was terrific. Like I, I already mentioned like the character biographies too, which would be I think cast list. So you'd have all the prominent characters in the game, you know, up up to and including Swanky Kong. It should be mentioned, like, those expanded stories were always under the heading The Story So Far, yeah, which has just cemented itself in my lexicon as just a standard phrase meaning a game's backstory. We we stole that shamelessly in early DK Vine. You did. Vine. Yeah. Because I think I remember seeing it on DK Vine first. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> and it was it was so, like evocative of a name and i I like that story so far for a game that had been out for years like wait what what, are are you going to continue this story like are you going to be releasing donkey kong country point five at any point like what does this mean um but yeah i mean we we were so inspired by everything lee did on this website as impressionable youth i mean i guess you know there there are worse places to take inspiration to have mentors like you know some some british writer in the in the midlands of you know in in the countryside writing this nonsense you know could have could have been worse influences on young us so eventually we found our own voice it took a while but yeah we we were just just completely aping what he was doing the other sections like for like the quote unquote recent games tended to be um Critical Mash, which would be like a repository for like review pull quotes. Yeah. Um, and I believe as this practice went on of Rare putting critical quotes on their website, I think sometimes Lee would get indulgent and put like a rude one in there just to just to <laughs> just to mix it up. What once once you got t- like closer to the buyout, like when the sort of uh, Gen X hipsterish takes on rare would start really cropping up when when these uh these gamers who didn't come of age with rare but were old enough to then write for all of the publications and they weren't fans of donkey country or they weren't fans of this or that and and they would have a lot more harshness in reviews for their games rather than just the unanimous praise they were getting from 94 through 2000 or so uh yeah i think i think lee was just like well fuck it you know i mean what am i gonna do you know i roll with the punches here but um yeah and i i like how he had a game help session because he knew in this era of the internet people usually searched for games because they were looking for help because they they were stuck right and so he Rather than actually providing a game help section, and his game help section was Ask Uncle Tusk, so he would just provide a link to GameFAQs. You'd click the button like any other subsection, and this one would just link you off site to the GameFAQs page. <laughs> like th- this, this is what this is what I uh, why I feel like he was a kindred spirit with me because I also did not care about game help. People would come to DK Vine and look for game help, and I'd be like, "We're not. This is this isn't what we're here for." We're we're here to talk about story and lore and celebrate the world of the games. You wanna you wanna know where the like second creme coin in Bramble Scramble is? I'm not gonna tell you that. You, you need to look at the back of your lunchables like everybody else. 
<laughs> so yeah, I just love that that was not an aspect, a genuine aspect of rareware, except as a joke. Right? And and for the actual section for game help, because he knew people would be coming looking for it. Here's game facts. There's game facts. Leave us alone. And uh, there was also a gallery section under the recent heading, um, which, speaking of things that proliferated throughout the rest of the internet, um, this is the nexus point for a lot of the old promo renders we still have online, especially the ones DK Vine had. Yeah, if you're wondering why so many of the preserved images from the Donkey Country trilogy are just blurry jpegs it's because we got them from rareware and we've never found a higher source sorry at least we have them at all i mean um yeah i mean and of course lee would always brand them with the the rareware uh logo the slab the golden slab um you would stamp them on the the images so uh, whenever you see one of those renders floating around a line with that rareware logo on it that's why it came from the site one one practice cameron that we engaged in was once we started once we read everything on rareware we would look at the source the html source code and we would try to find stuff that wasn't actually like published or had links to like we would go digging for hidden images on the site. Occasionally we would find some. Occasionally like oh I I found some dinosaur planet art that hasn't been published. I was like, "Oh, cool. Cool." <laughs> um I mean, this was just a common practice like you knew the website well enough that you knew your way around like the back rooms of the website that you weren't supposed to be snooping around in. And it's like, oh my god, you hacked Rareware? No, we we just put in different URLs to, to like we just put in different addresses trying to like figure out where he might have uploaded some of these images. And yeah, occasionally you would find some. Occasionally you would find you know music. Occasionally, you know, like we would never find any like massive scoops. Like we didn't find Donkey Kong sixty four stuff uploaded on Rareware prior to January first, nineteen ninety nine. But you know you would still go hunting. It's something I still engage with occasionally today. I'm like, I wonder if Nintendo has anything they're not supposed to have on their website. Like, you, around E3 time, or whenever it'd be E3 time, you start going snooping, you know? You'd also, if you were archiving all of the renders up on the site, because, like, of course you would, they're not anywhere else. You gotta grab them while they're there. Um, You'd sometimes catch an amusing file name on something, yeah. or... Something that would, I think they got like especially indulgent with it well into like the mid 2000s was amusing alt text or like hover text. (laughs) (laughs) This this was probably, I I think, my favorite little flourish of the website because it not only were there jokes in all of the text, there were jokes hidden if you knew where to look. I would have to imagine this is where DK Vine giving things comedy captions came from. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the exact same spirit. Yeah, and, and, you know, this is back when you would just hover over an image and a little little caption would pop up. Boop! And uh, you don't see that anymore. Like, that's not a thing anymore. Yeah, I'll see, like, webcomics maybe sometimes do it. 
to get an extra joke in, but like it's not really a site wide it's not really like an internet wide practice anymore. And I think, you know, part of that is like accessibility issues and like I don't think it would work on mobile and uh No. Yeah. Not really at all. Like you you have to have a cursor to make that work, but like every every image had one. It was fantastic. And so you 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 had to like you had to like stop and hover over the image and then you just wait a second, half a second for it to pop up and you're like ha 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 and that you know, if you go if you go through uh, Internet Archive, you can, at the very least, if the image doesn't pop up, you can actually read the image caption in the broken image. So, and it'll sometimes be funny trying to guess what the image was through the context of what the joke is. Right, right. So yeah, I mean, I I remember. Well, I'll. I'll well, I'll get into my whole origin story of how I found Rareware, but I, I do remember, like, the itch to get back to the site, to read more. Because I was like, there's so much content here that I have to read. And I want to read it. And it just became the the burning drive to get back online on a permanent basis. Because this was at the point where my parents had said, you know, we're getting rid of America Online because it's not worth it. It's not worth being on the internet. Um, And so there was, like, this interim period, I think, from, like, early 97 to late 1998, where I was not online. Finally, enough had changed in that period where I was able to convince them Hey, we need to go back. We need we 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 need to get back online because for me, I'm thinking rare. I got I I have to constantly read rareware. But to them, I pitched for school for for my education. It, it, it will benefit me greatly. It will give me a leg up on the other students. It's going to be a requirement in the 21st century. I was right, mom and dad. But also, America Online changed their pricing so they no longer like build you hourly or whatever. It was it was now you just paid a flat fee and you can have be online for as long as you want, which was the game changer. It's what really drove, at least here in the states, people getting online as part of their just monthly bills, the the infrastructure of life. That that's really where everybody started gravitating towards the internet, and it wasn't just this sort of passing fad in the mid-90s. It, it was actually part of our f- the fabric of our life. And then, of course, we realized America Online shit, and we actually got <laughs> on uh, better internet services. But, yeah. So, I mean, we, we've hit upon the major sections, Cameron, but are there any other, uh, like... There, there are a lot more sections on Rareware than just what we described. I, I, there, there was other stuff that... I don't really recall as well as you do. Um, is there anything you would like to address? Well, some of this isn't stuff I recall so much. It's just things I came up with in this archaeological dig <laughs> of old code. Um, but just like, just to briefly touch on some of the other things that the site did. I mean, for one, it did operate as a functional corporate website. There was descriptions of Rare's history, the day-to-day life of the studio. There was 
spotlighting some of the like company roles like designers programmers artists and musicians Mm -hmm. there's an interesting one to look back on which is quote rare today where they are where they're talking about the then ongoing renovation at manor park with with like documented photos of the new studio being built for for those who don't know rare moved into their current sprawling campus which is called manor park in was it 2000 i can't remember the exact date but there's like like looking at this page you can see like almost time stamped this page being updated from like just describing the plan to showing pictures of the actual building as the life of the site went on yeah because yeah back like throughout most of the 90s they were in manor house and this is where the terminology barns came from because they would be out in the barns making games and then they actually moved to a then state-of-the-art it's still pretty state-of-the-art uh campus that they are currently still at aside from a brief uh, flirtation with moving their operations into birmingham um right at the tail end of the connect sports era before craig duncan took over and said no, we're actually going to stay at Manor Park. This is great. Why would we ever leave this and like put the investment into refurbish it then? Um, so if if you ever want to know, like what what wasn't rare moving into Birmingham? Um, weren't they like moving into like this like loft or something like the the upper floor of a building? It's like they were they were going to do that, and then it was actually the rare renaissance era that saved manor park and that's where they remain today and uh of course being a corporate website there was also and there this has been a constant through basically everything um a place to submit job applications and uh i only bring this up because the earliest iteration of this on rareware was called recruitment and Everything on Rare's website in this era tended to have like a character render that was the face of it. (laughs) (laughs) And because it was called Recruitment, the character representing this was Clump. (laughs) The the classic Donkey Kong Country render of Clump with the big nipples. (laughs) Too hot for Tumblr. Didn't they also have a forum, Cameron? Briefly. Very, very briefly, which um, I look up records of it now, and the top post is Lee making a test test inflammatory post just to see if things were working right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the forum was discontinued um, with the next revision of the site in 2001, uh, quote, because... There was no compromise to be found between the old manual system and a potentially lethal unmoderated setup. Yeah. Like basically it it it's too much. Yeah, it it it, it wasn't like a traditional forum where you could just register and post, right? It it was um like wasn't Lee just approving everything? I I believe so, but I mean it, it's not really something Rare's official website needed because that's where places like DK Vine were filling in, really. Right, right. When we still had a working forum. The new forum will be up as soon as we get it working. 
Yeah, you know, I, I definitely, like, didn't want to interact with anybody else on the Rare website. Like, I came to interact with Lee, and therefore, you know, vicariously interact with Rare. Um, I first found the Rare website in July 1998, as I mentioned. And I, I brought this up in the past when discussing Stop and Swap, because I found their website... At my friend Elliot's house, we were searching on his computer, his family's computer, because he was on America Online at the time. We were searching for answers on the ice key and question mark eggs seen at the end of Banjo-Kazooie because we would not just settle on the game's explanation that oh you just had to wait until banjo tooie we're like that's that's nonsense what what do you mean we have to wait till banjo tooie because we never had this experience of there is this game that you beat oh but you didn't actually beat it there's still some things that you just have to wait a year or two to get and we're like what do you mean we can't we have we have to beat the game so i started searching for for answers to this and i just stumbled upon rareware and i was like is this like rare's official website and i started reading it and i got answers well not really answers on um the ice key and question mark eggs it was more just the the response like oh no no you really do have to wait until banjo tooie now I, you know, it's like all right, but at that point it didn't really matter because I realized after reading through this for twenty to forty minutes or so, I was like, oh my god, it's L Loveday writing all of this. L Loveday from the credits from the games, and I, I was so like giddy, like I, 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 I was on Rare's website. I was reading the words of this guy who I vaguely knew of, who I knew had written for, for Donkey Kong games and Banjo-Kazooie. And and then, you know, I was just, like, drawn in. I was hooked. I was addicted. And like I said, I, I had to get back online to just constantly be a part of this. And, you know, Rareware, the website, was really where Rare celebrated this notion that there was a shared rare universe. Um, like, for example, Lee would mention Diddy Kong in Conker's biography on the 12 Tales page, right? We at DK Vine uh, arrived at the concept of the DKU independently of Rare's website. This is something that, you know, I followed with my aforementioned friend Elliot, um, Throughout the years, like when Diddy Kong Racing was announced, and I was like, oh, this means Banjo and Conker are in the same universe. This means they're spinning off of Diddy Kong Racing. And this is something that, you know, Chad had also tracked by himself before we met up in 1999 and started, you know, working on DK Vine. Um, but it was Lee who was actually keeping it consistent at Rare. And, you know, I'm always getting these, like, gotcha tags on social media where, you know, Chris Seaver, Greg Mails will say like, oh, I never intended Conker to be in the same world as Donkey Kong, or I never intended Banjo to be in the same world as Donkey Kong. And they're like, see, there's no DKU. Gotcha. Um, but 
it, yeah, Lee was was the one who was really running with it independently of us. Uh, years before shared universes were in vogue in Hollywood. I mean, this this was where it was reinforced and and really celebrated, and just this this idea that you we had this shared universe and it could continue to expand and evolve brought up tip top earlier it's amazing how hot tip top was in these circles at this point in time <laughs> tip top was for whatever reason just earmarked as this character who of course was going to get his own game he would often come up on rare's website and scribes be like so when's tip top's game coming of course we're going to get a tip top game why wouldn't we get a tip top game the public demands a tipped-up game. And this was all natural. This was all obvious, second nature. Yeah, tipped-up's going to get his own game. Pepsi's probably going to get her own game. And I don't know. It it, it, it was just... Um, it was already a magical time with Rare's games. But then to have that level, that next level of fandom and nerdery where you could then go on Rare's website and fetishize a tip top game i i like i i honestly like look back at that time and and i just it always just warms my heart even though we're so far removed from it and and now you know i'm just struggling to get tt and sea of thieves i mean we've, we've long since passed the point where we have any hope of any diddy kong racing character getting their own game who's not you know banjo or conquer even Diddy Kong getting his own game seems like uh, just this ludicrous notion these days. But yeah, I, I look back and I'm like, yeah, it just felt like anything was possible back then. And that that was really the magic of, of Rareware and, and Scribes. And it's the effect that it had on my fandom because, like I said, I identified as a Nintendo fan. I was a Nintendo kid. You know, I, I had an NES. I had a Super Nintendo Got an N64. I I was firmly against Sega, the evil Sega Genesis, and the way it, it tried to sully the good name of Nintendo. I, I was so just hardcore in, in that, like, this is my brand identity. I identify with Nintendo. I'm a Nintendo kid. And reading Rareware really did make me realize, you know, I really just like Rare's games far and away above everything else doesn't mean i don't like nintendo's games even though that's you know kind of the identity i took on for a while dk vine but it just meant like rare just sort of like hit that bullseye every time with what i was looking for in a video game especially that commitment to world building and yeah i mean i i don't think i would really have made that full evolution into who i became DK Vineheil, if it wasn't for Rareware, for better or for worse. And let me tell you, you now we started DK Vine August 22nd, 1999. So, you know, a little over a year after I first found Rareware. And, and Rareware definitely did start percolating that notion in my head, like, be a great to have a website about all of this. Specifically, like, stripped down to my niche interest, which was the DKU. And... 
that sense of accomplishment when we got DK Vine into Rare's Rareware's Elsewhere section, which was their page of offsite links to other video game websites and rare fan sites. Because RareNet, the, the biggest rare fan site up until that point was RareNet. And of course, RareNet, we always viewed with envy and that, that kind of like, um, okay, this is the competition. This is who we have to best. We have to best RareNet. And RareNet was a couple of guys who were who were older than us. They were college age. They were better writers than us. They were, you know, ha- had a better presentation, but we were, we, we, we had... Um, scrappiness we had um real get up and go and and we were like we want to be bigger <laughs> than rare net and so when we got on that elsewhere page underneath rare net it felt hugely validating for us like oh my god we're on rare's website we've made it <laughs> and, and you know now geek Vine is bigger than rare net we won eventually but <laughs> Kind of highlandered a lot of those other rare sites over the years. All we had to do was just uh, persevere. Uh, they all just fell on their own. We didn't do anything. And it just it's just funny nowadays because now we have this big like shared sense of family, right? Like I'm not at competition right. with Rare Gamer or DKC Atlas. We're friends. We're all friends. But back then it was very much like you're doing it wrong. We're going to take you out. There's also not even this, like, this sense of factionalism that there used to be with rare fan sites because yeah, yeah. everybody sort of carved out their own little niche. It's like, yeah, we're DK Vine, but we're still talking about Perfect Dark and Everwild and, and things that, like, aren't DKU or aren't DKU yet. Yeah, I was going to say, Everwild, we're going to make that DKU somehow. We'll, 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 we'll worry about that when Everwild is released. So we, we have a good 10 to 15 years yet. <laughs> we're a lot more flexible, I think, about widening the net than we used to be. Like, Killer Instinct is DKU. Well, that's because now. Log was in it, Cameron. Do I need to do I need to take you back to our <laughs> Tribunal <laughs> <Yeah>. episode? <laughs> Uh, we, the one I was on. Yeah, no, you were there. <laughs> we don't have to re-argue this. Look, it, it, it's just funny how the culture has changed, right? With with rare fandom, right. because back then, like I think the only like factional like divides you have in the rare fandom might be like it's sort of below our purview, where you have the people who were like, I liked rare back in the nineties when they were with Nintendo. And then you have the people who are just all about Sea of Thieves and and nothing predating Sea of Thieves. But I, I think like the 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 big rare fandom sites that identify as rare fans that are still standing, we're all friends and we all really have this like open celebration. Like, look, DK Vine's not gonna touch on upon all the stuff that Rare Gamer touches upon. Rare Gamer's not gonna be talking about Doggone Country Tropical Freeze. Um, and, and we, we recognize that, Hey, we all have valid things to add to the discourse. We, we can't, you know, we, we, we can't be everything. So it's great that you're there. There's room for all of us to exist because not any, not any one of us can be the everything. Right. And like back in the day, rare felt so huge and sprawling that you would have like, Oh, you like rare, but you only like the first person shooters. We're going to destroy you. 
<laughs> because you don't like Banjo Kazooie as much as we do. We're gonna burn you to the ground. And and it's just ludicrous now. But I mean, that's a, a, it's a very much uh, a, a childlike, early teenage kind of sensibility toward towards all of this. Where if you don't see things completely eye to eye the way we see things, you are the enemy. It's it, it's funny in hindsight, but yeah. Um, Rareware was the thing that could bring us all together. You know, this, these different factions of, of Rare fans. It's like, but we're all reading Rareware. We're all going to this website together. Um, and it did make you interested in even the stuff you weren't interested in. Like, I would read about Blastcore on Rareware. Where, you know, Blastcore didn't really appeal to me as a gamer, as a fan. But it, it sure was fun seeing Lee's enthusiasm for Blastcore. So, yeah, if I didn't buy it or wasn't interested in a game at the time, I'd still be looking up the artwork. I'd still be interested in listening to the music. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So almost three years to the day that Rareware launched, it was actually May 15th, 2001. This is when we had the first big renovation to the website. And this is the one that really sticks out in my mind as, as, the dividing line between classic rareware and the more modern rare fans. Like this was just a blip in the history, but this felt huge at the time considering, you know, how often we all visited the site. This was the first time they really gave it a makeover to make it look more contemporary with, you know, the internet changed very rapidly from 1998 to 2001 it was more ubiquitous. It was more mainstream by that point. And they they gave it the very first um, refurbishments at this point in time. Do you want to discuss the new site aesthetics of Rare? Yeah, and uh, I call it new site because um, for ages after this refer- refurb kind of happened... Rare had a link on the welcome page called New Site Explanation, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't think anybody does this anymore. You just kind of like, well, no, we changed it. Fuck you. Um, Right. (laughs) um, So the biggest um, difference in this is marked and this was a total visual overhaul of the site like as you said it's a lot more contemporary i think it's i describe it as a bridge between rare wear and what kind of the site would become in the future most of the old content was still around um most of it just like a lot of it got like a little updates here and there um some stuff was fleshed out but um the old logo was gone. The rareware logo that that brand is retired for the that branding for the website is retired. Um, doesn't have the gradiented like wavy jazz font anymore. Everything is a very like clean sans serif text. It's honestly maybe a bit more readable. Um, Prob- not that, yeah, yeah, probably not that the old site was particularly bad in that regard either. Um, the background color changed from dark blue to sort of. I describe it as like the color of denim jeans, like denim blue jeans, kind mm-hmm. of. And uh, most notably, I think um, it had introduced a right-aligned navigation bar um, credited 
um, in the new site explanation to a designer named Sue, um, no last name given, mm-hmm. which was the navigation bar was sort of an, an elongated version of the rare slab logo with the bottom section made up of various navigation pages. Um, unfortunately, this is the, I think, the first major breakage you encounter trying to view Rare's web presence on the Wayback Machine. Yep. Because uh, it's effectively trying to load two web pages at once. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, uh, a lot of, a lot of the images are broken. This is where I just give up. When I when I try to, like, go down memory lane, I'm like, oh, yeah, this this road's closed for repairs. I can't k- go down that way. Which, which is a shame, because then you miss, like, heading pages with the... With Wrinkly Kong and Bellamy Bear. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is where we first... Well, we in the... Outside of the UK got the first um, notion that Bramble Bear from off of Donkey Kong Country 3 had a localized name exclusively to the UK and Europe, was it? Um, Bellamy Bear, yeah. Yeah, which I think is just it's a reference that doesn't translate, so Right. Yeah, it was it was it was named after a presenter, some some gardener garden show. I don't know. But yeah, it, it's uh you know, I, I liked the new site look. It it definitely didn't bother me all that much. I definitely have more nostalgia and fondness for that dark blue jazz font. Just 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 classic look for the site, but this did look more contemporary. This did look more professional, but it still retained the same spirit. Like, nothing was really abandoned at this point. Yeah, I don't think there's really a lot to take issue with just because the old content was, by and large, still there. And yeah. if anything, like, more fleshed out. Um, for instance, uh, Hyle, did you know the cast list for Perfect Dark got its own, like, bespoke character art created just for it? I did not, no. I did not know that because I don't read RareNet. Why would I ever know this? I know you're lying because I bragged about it like a month ago. <laughs> that I tracked it all down. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, this in- this iteration of the site retained Uncle Tusk and Scribes and retained the entire archive of them. That's right. But this iteration of the site would not be long for the world. This This only lasted... Until September 24th, 2002, which is the time of the Rare buyout, when Microsoft purchased Rare, and it brought with it the most dramatic changes to Rare's website, and it would really be the dividing line between Rare's website as we knew it and loved it and the future. So I think I can speak to this. I think I touched on this in our episode about the Rare buyout. Mm-hmm. So I believe I didn't really have like reliable home internet access until the year 2000. So I had missed a lot of the heyday of the original iteration of Rareware. The first one that I clearly remember was the new site, because I remember going to Rare's webpage, looking for info on Star Fox Adventures, and encountering 
a little taste of everything else that made the site so significant. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where I was like semi-regularly checking in on Rare's official website in like in 2002, leading leading up to Star Fox Adventures coming out. And one day I uh, was on a friend's computer with the idea of like, hey, I want to show you this really cool website. Oh, no. And uh, I log on and this must have been <laughs> on or around September 24th, 2002. I uh, load up the page and huh, I don't remember there being like a flash welcome screen on this website. I'm just going to click through that. And uh, I am greeted with a very unfamiliar looking, uh, unfamiliar and familiar looking uh, web page. Um, previously, Fox McCloud was the, the marquee character on the website oh, because no. Rare, Rare would periodically, as new releases were coming out, the the main page of the site when you first loaded in would kind of be updated with a character render relevant to like a recent release or just rotated out to do something different once in a while. Sure. At that point, it was Fox McCloud. Following September uh, 24th, it became Cameo. And I mean, early Cameo, um, like white dress and pink Cameo. Mm-hmm. And uh, huh, I got a really sparse looking website here. Not doesn't look like as much as here. What's this welcome message? Welcome to the new online home of Rare, a high-profile software developer currently beginning the latest chapter in a long and memorable journey through the gaming world. Partnership with Microsoft and the intention to create top-tier games for its Xbox console. <laughs> and and this would have been fine. Like we're not going to be discussing the buyout on this episode. We did a big no. episode for the 20th anniversary of the buyout last season. I recommend you check that out. It's it's. A very fair look at the emotions that were swirling at the time. This wouldn't have been bad. But the problem is, with the buyout, with their then very, very recent divorce with Nintendo, this meant they had to go scorched earth on all of that beloved treasured content on Rareware's site. Now just... What was it? Welcome to Rare is what they called the website at this point. Or what we called the website because it it was just Welcome to Rare. Yeah, it greeted, it greeted you with Welcome to Rare. And so we called the website almost as sort of a like derisive like, like point, point, pointed like way to refer to it. Oh, Welcome to Rare. It's not Rareware anymore. It's Welcome to Rare. Yeah. Um, you know, we are kick, kicking the, the sand. Um, beneath our feet because we were so just dejected because this was like like so i you know my parents never divorced so i i never experienced like the the weird like your world as you knew it is basically dividing but this is kind of what it felt like i would imagine It, it was heartbreaking and disorienting to suddenly have all of the Nintendo content, Donkey Kong content, Star Fox Adventures content even, just poof. When we say scorched earth, it wasn't just the Nintendo uh, stuff that got caught up in this uh, lighting everything 
pouring gasoline on everything and lighting a match. Um, Most of the site content was just completely scrubbed. Uh, Uncle Tusk's last iteration on the the last layout was April 9th, 2002. Um, All the records completely gone. um, Scribes completely gone. Um, The archives would only go back as far as when the new iteration of the site launched. Yeah, Scribes scribes would continue, but the archives of Scribes, gone. Which, um, as we mentioned on the buyout episode, um, meant that the very first iteration you could read on Welcome to Rare, as far back as you can go, um, began with a very lengthy section of... People just giving Rare sh- no end of shit mm-hmm. over the buyout. Yeah. Uh, very, very fun. Um, <laughs> well, and, and like, for me as a fan of this website, I, I might have been able to handle the buyout better at the time had that history still been represented on the website. But this was really the the turning point of the website, too, where it became less Lee's personal playground, his is pride and joy and it slowly started becoming a more like um forward-facing polished representation of rare like lee still injected a ton of his personality in it but all of that work he put into all of these pages had to be removed because at this point you know you can't have donkey kong renders everywhere you you, you know we we don't even like eventually you know Tensions with Thaw, with, with, you know, Nintendo and Rare, and they would work together to celebrate their shared heritage. But at this point, nobody knew what the future would entail. And so it, there, there was this stark, stark divide. I think it also put Lee in a really unenviable position at this point in time because, you know, he had been the liaison between Rare and the fandom and cemented that that sort of niche for himself and rareware had become rare's website has become this institution and now he kind of had to step into the role of damage control basically yeah it's really i imagine uh, an amazing role to be the sort of uh, buffer between the fandom and a beloved studio when it's May 1998 and said studio is at the height of their renown and powers. And it's another thing entirely to be in that same role um, for some years later when you've just announced to your fandom that the console they all just bought to follow the studio will now not have the studio's games on it. And they're, they've been bought by the competition, this startup owned by the reviled Microsoft, because this is coming off of the nineties. Like, uh, Oh yeah. I mean, you people think like Microsoft has a bad public image today. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't great. It wasn't great in the late nineties either. No, no. I mean, Microsoft was reviled among techies in, in the, the 90s for their antitrust policies they you know for like they they were they were taken to court by the government and you know j- just for monopolizing and forcing people to use their software and 
all this stuff. So totally it's... different from today. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> I think we've all just ex- kind of accepted it today. Like it's it's Microsoft, and th- every everybody's doing everybody's it. doing it. But <laughs> at the time, it was quite controversial. Um, and then for them to say we're getting into the video game market with the Xbox, of course, people were just like, "This isn't your realm. Get out of here." This even led to like. Early in this iteration of the site, it had a dedicated letter to fans button. Yeah. That was a PR statement from Chris and Tim Stamper basically saying, like, look, we we know you all are kind of upset, confused, nervous, angry about this, but Rare has existed for a long time. This is just another chapter in our history. We thank you for your support. We're still going to make the kinds of games you love. Yeah. And I, I think for those of us who had fully adopted the identity, the mentality of being Rare fans first and foremost, all this meant for us is, one, we're going to have to buy an Xbox, and two, I hope Nintendo treats Donkey Kong right. So, <laughs> and of course, you know, I... I are, are we ever going to get a follow-up to Star Fox Adventures? But for a lot of the fandom, they view, still view themselves as Nintendo fans who really liked Rare's games. And so f- to be in Lee's position now, he had to sort of take all of this negative energy, this torrent of angry letters and feedback, and put a positive spin on it. And sort of, like you said, do damage control. I don't know how he did it. Well, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he's still at Rare today. Because this would have broken most people. Like, right? Like, I would have been like, all right, as, as soon as we get over this hurdle, I'm leaving. I'm going to calmer waters. This is this is nonsense. This is not what I signed up for. I, I don't know how he did it. I, I really don't. As somebody who does have a degree of social anxiety and, and and struggles being the face of something as low pressure as DK Vine, I don't know how he, how he managed this period of his life, this period of rare. I don't know how he came out of this and not only came out of this, but also had a sense of humor about it as yeah. well. Yeah. Like, I... I have said that Rare's approach, or specifically Lee's approach to how this was handled on the public face of Rare's website, because I was in this position of like, well, I already hitched my wagon to a GameCube. I just can't play Rare games anymore, I guess. And I don't know what's going to happen to Donkey Kong, but rare's website existing in this capacity let me vicariously stay a rare a rare fan Mm -hmm. because i was getting constant updates on everything they were doing well presented information and it was all in this very personable humanized tone yeah and i think you know it 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 did help that he did get support from a lot of the fans like you know we at DK Vine, like a lot of us, we we didn't abandon Rare, and we, I I think you know, had everybody just been like, bye, you know, we, you're dead to us. <laughs> that would have been harder for him, but you know, 
we did stick around, and I I hope that helped him during this ugly transition between the Nintendo years and the Microsoft years. But yeah, like it, I, I I look back at that time, and I couldn't even read like that that first edition of Scribes because it was too painful to see all of that ugliness. And like I I read through it, but it, it was just like. At that point, I'd already made the decision, well, I'm going to have to get an Xbox, and th- this isn't my preferred outcome either, but I'm going to try to make the best of this. I'm still going to be a fan of Rare. I'm still going to want to follow Banjo-Kazooie and Conquer and whatever else they do. So, but but to see that vitriol, you know, it, it, it was rough. Sure was. Um... But this version of the site, or rather, this version of the site got a slight refresh um, around May 26, 2003. Um, At least that's the archive.org date for the earliest version I could find. Uh Um, Because Rare's brand got a refresh um, around the release of Ghoulies, where they dropped the slab logo. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, the last appearance in-game of the the classic Rareware slab and branding was Banjo-Kazooie Grunty's Revenge. And then Grabbed by the Ghoulies, their first for the Xbox was the one that had the the buyout era Rare logo, which I do like. It's it's not as iconic, but I I was fine with it at the time. I think it's a a logical step forward, and it did... It's the logo that first drops the wear from the iconography, so it is just branded as rare. Yeah. Which I think is completely the right move. Sure, for sure. Um, I still think this is a good, like, iconic logo for them. But because they rebranded, the site layout had to change as well, kind of restructured around the new look. And uh, this is one of the ones that sticks in my head the most because I... Like I said, I was vicariously keeping up with everything they were doing. Like, well, I can't play Ghoulies, but I still want to look at things. I want to read the type, the tep, the tepid seat. I want to follow all this Conquer stuff because Live and Reloaded looks insane. Um, like the prettiest video game I'd ever seen at the time. Right. Oh, and they they've got an an MP3 section hosting like new music and all their a bunch of old N64 tracks. And I'm looking over all the wallpapers and screenshots and reading scribes. And I, I was just super into the site around this time because, again, like, I can't play the games. I'm grasping in any straw I can. And, again, the spirit of the site was retained while stuff like Uncle Tusk was no longer there or all of that, you know, great content that was there pre-buyout was gone. It was still Lee behind it. He was still the same writer he was before. And so we kept coming back to it. And yeah, I, w- I was right there with you. Like th- this is that weird point in DK Vine history where I, I was only like devoted myself part-time to DK Vine. And, um, but I was still very much into like the concept of the DKU and everything rare was doing and live and reloaded. Yeah. Like that was the game we were all sort of hyping ourselves around, especially when Donkey Kong jungle beat looked well, we were uncertain, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, let's just say, uh, of what was happening with Donkey Kong at the time. But, oh, Conquer looked gorgeous. Conquer was going to be 
Xbox's mascot, Cameron. It was the golden age that was opening up for Conquer. It was it was following Live and Reloaded on Rare's website that got me to track down Bad Fur Day because I was too young for it when it first released. Technically still too young for it when I got it secondhand. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I have to admit that this version of Rare's website is the last one that really sticks out in my mind. Be- because I think the next time they had a refresh, it would be a few years later. It would be like late 2006, around the time of the 360, right? Yeah, we should also mention, um, even though Uncle Tusk fell by the wayside, Mr. Pants was still around and in a way kind of appropriated his role a little bit. Oh, the pants board. That's right. Yeah, the pants board. So the survey section and Uncle Tusk kind of got merged into one thing spiritually, which was the survey responses were now publicly posted and Mr. Pants would comment on them. Well, you know, this was really ramping up to the true height of Mr. Pants' career, which was in the uh, the (laughs) mid-aughts. So it, it makes sense that Mr. Pants would only continue to grow and influence Meanwhile, we won't have a new Killer Instinct game for years. So, yeah, get Tusk out of here. Um, so, yeah, it was it was around the launch of the 360, somewhere around then, that they, they launched the n- next iteration of Rare's website, which I don't remember. I, I, have to, I have to admit, like, I was more detached at this point in time. This, this was when I started to kind of like concentrate on other aspects before I decided to become a Donkey Kong journalist. So, so uh, this is when I started, you know, um, working on, on my screenwriting and, and I didn't, wasn't paying attention quite as much. I do vividly remember this layout. Um, it was, I think we kind of collectively call it the iPod design because I mean, that was kind of the conceit of, the theming for this was it was a very sleek like mp3 player style layout um in baby blue with like white frames around everything and uh an interactive animated navigation panel with sound Mm. um and an mp3 player like very elaborate setup you know kind of appropriate for rare because historically their music has always been spectacular but i say I vividly remember it. Unfortunately, revisiting those memories is very complicated because this iteration of the website used Flash. The plugins that Lee so like loudly eschewed when he first built the site would just become more and more omnipresent as the site would go on, and which means revisiting these eras is nigh impossible. Yeah, you can you can find the odd page from this iteration of the site on Wayback, but you have a hard time getting anywhere because the navigation bar just straight up does not work. But I do have um, fun memories of some of the things they were able to do with this. Um, Some of the like little, there were little bits of animation here or there on their website. Mm. I actually associate the cameo character Deep Blue with a very specific thing because of this website, which was, um, there was an animated deep blue on the like it was either the extras section or the recruitment section where if you hovered over him a like cartoon growly noise would play and his mouth would kind of move in like a 
very like basic marionetted like fashion. And I would accidentally hover over him all the time, so I just hear growl, growl, growl. <laughs> there was even a an Easter egg on the site um, where if you clicked a specific part of the MP3 navigation bar, it would um, launch out a hidden section with a Simon dial on it. Um, the the color matchmaking, just the game of Simon for 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 no reason. Yeah, get game of Simon like like in DKC three. Right, get a banana bird, set it free. Which uh, led you if you finished a few rounds of it successfully, you'd be taken to a hidden page that had a contest link. Oh, what was the contest? I couldn't tell you because I didn't submit anything in time, and I felt too sad to look it back up. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's where, like, the nuts and bolts and mugs you occasionally see surface on eBay come from, came oh, from. okay. They were, like, one of the prizes in it. And the page stuck around even after the contest and did for people who just wanted to have fun with the Simon game. This version of the site did last, I think, into 2010, did it not? Like, uh, like to the Connect Sports era. Into, like, early to mid-2010, and... uh the final full-sized edition of Scribes we would get was September 18th, 2009. Wow, it's wild to think that Scribes, like, the full editions of Scribes even lasted into the Obama administration. Um, but, yeah, like, at that point, he just did, what was it, mini-Scribes? So, in around June 15th, 2010, that's when the next big uh, rebrand happened. Um, I say that again, I'm dating it to, well, th this actually got a news post on January 15th about the rebrand, mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily mention the website. It just mentions Rare's uh, rebrand in the 2010s, um, which the site was themed around, um, you know, the, the universally beloved uh, multicolor shape Rare logo. Yeah, you know, we, we try to put a positive spin on things here at DK Vine. You know, we, we are a fan of quite a bit of the Xbox years of Rare. We love Grab by the Ghoulies, Viva Pinata, Sea of Thieves, of course, Cameo. Um, and generally, we, we try to be optimistic even about eras or games we're not that enthusiastic about. This Rare logo is garbage. I'm sorry. I will never like this rare logo. I, I, no, no, no. And we even have like testimonials from like former rare employees about hating this logo. It's, I, I, I don't like it. It's, it, it's too, it's too different from anything they've done before and pushes back their like most recognizable iconography to the, to the far reaches of the, the top right hand corner it's it's a little too clean a little too sterile and a little bit unfocused to me it's that awful 2010 era aesthetic of let's just strip everything down like let's just strip all the design out of design and just just have i, I don't know i don't like it 
I don't like like Rare's logo needs to have a golden R in there somewhere. Yeah, there's there's no gold, there's no blue. It's gray and whatever color was backing the logo. Yeah, I fucking hate this. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the 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 site um, the site changed June 2010, and of course, like I I wasn't. This is this is the same time frame that Donkey Kong Country Returns was announced, right? And so my attention, if I'm honest, was completely elsewhere at this point, where I was going to Retro's site. It's like, oh my god, they have a banana on Retro's site. Ah! And I wasn't paying attention to this depressing era of Rare. It genuinely felt around this time that we just had, like... This constant scale tip between whether interesting things were going on with Donkey Kong or interesting things were going on with Rare, never simultaneously. Yeah, th- th- this post nuts and bolts just collapse of of Rare into the Kinect Studio, which again, as, as I always say when we bring this up, the Kinect sports games are very good at what they do. There are the best examples of those types of games. And and they're full of polish and charm. It's just not what I think most people associate with rare. They're, they're, it's not rare games. They're, they're ga- it was a very hard sell at the time. It especially was especially coinciding with the rebrand. Yes, and and when, it, it speaks volumes that the studio knew they had to get away from that. After Rivals, sort of, and well, not not just Rivals. Rivals, I think, was the best Connect sports game, but the Connect just collapsed at that point in time. Rivals didn't do well, and and Rare just went through the whole rebrand again to get back to some of their core identity. They kind of had to do the. They were kind of forced into this hard pivot because, well, they kind of re structured the entire studio around only doing connect games and then the connect wasn't happening anymore yeah and and people weren't buying it with their xbox ones yeah so suffice to say i do not remember the connect sports era site i might have gone there once or twice and gotten sad and 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 just looked away i think part of why this one doesn't stick in my memory as much is just because there wasn't as much anymore like the game section is pretty much i think this is a trend for like res web presence going forward where they're no longer a great archive of their own history as far as their game catalog goes yeah and a lot of the things that we were still paying attention to res web presence for were folded into a singular b- blog section and this is where we uh, got a continuation of Scribes still in some form in uh, uh, what was called Mini Scribes. Which is not to be confused with Snippets, which is what they they called the the short letters um, and, and s- I guess snippy responses that Lee would give at the end <laughs> of the full-length Scribes back in the day. Of course, anchored by the Banjo-Kazooie crab baddie snippet yeah there is there's a specific snippet burned into my memory that i'm just never going to forget and it it, it's basically something that i just reference all the time essentially 
by extension. And like for for context snippets, we're often like somebody wrote would write in with like one or two sentences. I I sat on my banjo kazooie cartridge. Help! <laughs> like I've got a page pulled up. One of them was, "You guys need your own form." A con- signed a concerned individual. The response in all lowercase. We so don't, dude. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the reason I have this iteration pulled out February 28th 2007 uh, a reader named Poga wrote thank you for your interest in rare which do you want to explain the significance of that Hyle I what I, I'm gonna let you Cameron well actually this this is one that I'm not as well versed in the source of oh okay I just okay. know it as like a standard clapback of Lee's so what Lee, Lee would have the habit of when when somebody would send in a terse letter or a really mind-numbingly stupid letter he he would he would give a response and he would end it with thank you for your interest in rare as this faux diplomatic professional PR kind of statement that he would not normally give right the the humor was in that this is the response you would get on literally any other corporate website. Right. And we are so not a corporate website. So that therein lied the humor. And yes. This snippet was, you know, making a funny, throwing this back in his face. And this was the response from from Lee. I'm not interested in rare, man. Everyone left in 2002 and now they're rubbish. Read it in a forum. Must be true. This is where, like, a lot of the... I, I think the clapback memes in the Rare fan community, like, really, really originated from, too. Where, like, all the good ones... This is what I think of every time I say all the good people. Yeah, all, all the good ones are all the good people at Rare left in insert year here. Um, which is stuff you would see, you know, on, on the internet. But this is where it was kind of crystallized in the mind for rare fans as kind of uh just a short shorthand yeah yeah many scribes lived and it was it was functionally scribes it was just there were less letters than usual which makes sense because i mean how many people really were writing in about connect sports on on a regular basis we're also encroaching on um the increased prevalence of social media like Rare had a Twitter account at, by this time. Yeah. And as much as much memories I have um wrapped up in Rare's website and you know um the the bittersweet like discontinuation of a lot of them over the years like I have to acknowledge that on some level like social media kind of makes a letter column redundant right yeah when you can just at rare at any point in time with a question they, they, they probably won't respond but yes i mean it even if you, you you can bypass their corporate account and just go straight to the people who run the twitter account and you're more likely to get a response so it's also a lot easier now that we just know a lot of these people's first and last names <laughs> right like yeah Hey, Grant, Grant Kirkpoke hasn't worked at Rare in years, but if you add him about the DK rap, he will probably say something to you. Probably, yes. Please don't bother Grant Kirkpoke just because I said that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, like like you said, like, 
the internet was changing around this time. So a lot of the very unique like things that made Rare's website relevant and a must-visit were kind of falling by the wayside. I mean, DK Vine, we're still around and, and we're doing very well for ourselves, you know, compared to, you know, the past. But we're never going to have a letters column again. That's just stupid. That's nonsense. You know, like, why would we have a letters column? Like, you, you can just ask me something on social media at DK Vine, and I will probably respond, depending. Um, and Rare can still be sardonic and quippy in their responses. Maybe may, maybe not as overtly rude as <laughs> and uh, flirting with trouble as they right. could back we're in not, the day. We're not going to but... threaten violence against anybody, but all the other things are on the table, sure. It's, it's just the loss of the history that I find discouraging right when when a when a website goes through a refurbishment and they just lose everything that that's when i'm like but there's so much great stuff on there like worthwhile stuff like history that as in in my mind is as important as the history of your games even if it's just history about your games it's still valued history to me as i said the final mini scribes was in July of 2012, um, another rare feature did crop up on the on the blog space one last time, which uh, was a very belated uh, tepid seat for Viva Pinata Trouble in Paradise in 2015. Uh, yeah, that's I, I would say very belated. <laughs> um, and I bring this up because. I said I would circle back around to this, and I think it is the one of the m- more evocative cases of what what I, what we just talked about with the changing landscape of the internet, kind of making some of these features redundant. Which was um, after the release of the game, Rare solicited um, questions for an iteration of the Tepid Seat for Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts. I remember this because it was the very first time I ever wrote into Rare. Oh, no. Um, And I spe- it was specifically to ask... I don't remember exactly what I wrote. I'm sure it was terribly written. But the gist of it was, hey, it's odd that this is the one Banjo game that doesn't have tipped-up real really in it at all except for grunty's revenge where he's just name dropped was there ever a plan to put him in and if so like what did he look like and that tepid seat was completely left unresolved according to someone even prodded rare's twitter account in 2010 asking for an update on it and uh specifically a status update on the q a was Nobody is providing the A's. Oh. <laughs> I I do appreciate, Cameron, that you were writing in about Tipped Up as late as, as that date. Because keeping, keeping the spirit alive of classic rareware. But I did end up getting a response to that in a way when, unprompted, Ed Bryan just tweeted out his Banjo-X design. Yeah, and I thanked him right then and there. Like you have no idea how many years I've been waiting to see this. 
Can't say I really like his Banjo X design that tipped up. Not my favorite tipped up, that's for sure. But interesting, nonetheless. So yeah, um, of course, then with the Rare Renaissance, E3 2015, when they announced Rare Replay and Sea of Thieves and introduced the new logo, the current logo, which I think we're all a fan of, definitely embracing some of what was lost even back when they got rid of the Rareware slab. Arguably the best logo they've had. Yeah, like, I, I will always be most nostalgic for the Rareware slab, but this, I think, has the best of both that and the buyout era Rare logo. And so. you don't have to render a new 3D model every time you want to use it. Right. So they they uh, refreshed everything on the website on this day. Uh, and I know it was the day, like, right after they announced Sea of Thieves, we were walking out of the... Um, the the theater um because uh, that was the first e3 we attended in person so it, it was me chad amir uh and steve from off of rare gamer all walking out together and i think it was amir who pulled it up on his phone he was like oh they've updated rare's website it's different now and and we saw the the new look for the renaissance era but this this was more of a, a stopgap i think yeah, th- this seems like it was very transitionary in the way of we're completely dropping this branding. We can't have our website look like this anymore. Yeah. We need to put something up. So it was kind of a singular, like infinitely scrolling page almost that just kind of highlighted Rare Replay, Sea of Thieves. Here's what job life is like at Rare. Here's all your social media accounts. Looked pretty, but there's not a lot there. Yeah, and at this point, you know, I honestly wasn't checking in on Rare's site, even on a monthly basis anymore. So it was just like, oh, this is cool, but I am I can get all this information elsewhere. And, and you know, had Rare's website not, not slowly been eroded over the years, that might not have been the case. But I, I sort of knew there would be no reason to continually visit. There wasn't going to be new scribes about Sea of Thieves, as cool as that would have been. So it was just like, oh, well, thank God they got rid of the old logo, I guess. And uh, that eventually would get a more meaty um, update um, in February of 2016, Uh whereabouts. Um, They did flesh it out into more of a complete website with individual sections and news pages you know, we're still we're still not getting scribes and you're still not getting like a massive archive of games. But um, it was worth checking in on every now and then because you did get de- new newly written, dedicated news articles. Um, yeah. And this is memorable for me because, you know, like I I don't need I didn't at this point in time, I didn't need to look at Rare's website to follow news on DKU stuff because I was working for DK Vine. I already knew it. It was my job to know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were still fun to read. You know, Lee, Lee was still penning them with, with help, I believe, um, as the as the, the web team expanded. Right. But a cool thing about this was occasionally a news article would come up and have just this obscure render from the archives coming out of nowhere. Um, like when Banjo and Kazoo- Banjo Kazooie had a major anniversary, we got that rent 
a like crisp version of this render of Banjo and Kazooie sitting around a campfire. Right. No longer blurry JPEGs. You would actually get as decent a quality as they could pull out. I even remember like there was a Killer Instinct article that had it was it was flanked in the in the far background by like a semi-transparent image of Spinal. And I remember that day digging through the HTML, like, I gotta pull that image out. I gotta <laughs> figure out where he's buried it. Yeah. And <laughs> stick that in a folder somewhere. Well, do do we want to even address what the website looks like nowadays? It it sure is a corporate website. Yeah, it it was November of last year that Rare's website got the newest refresh, which I would say was the last dying gasp of the rareware of old. It's a, it's a corporate website now. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound too like mournful or disparaging here, but it is just kind of the... It was kind of the sign of like, oh, the... This this iteration of the site is no longer really aimed at people like me anymore. No, really not. And, and that's not to say like Rare doesn't have web presence like off social media that's worth not worth checking out because CFEves dot com still has quite a bit to dig into. Um, but it's all centered around that one game. You're not going to get this whole like chronologue of Rare from the mid '80s onward. It's I'd compare it to how we've said as much that Sea of Thieves being this forever game that is always getting new content, always getting new writing, and has this constant presence in our lives makes it easier to swallow that it's been the only rare game since it came out. Right. Well, I mean... Not counting things like Battletoads 2020. Only in-house. Only entirely in-house rare release, I'll say. Yeah. I think in that way, it's... There's not a... Rare's website no longer existing as it did is not the death of that spirit at Rare because I can still go on their social media pages or the Rare website or... Frankly, Rare's games themselves, now that they're a lot more text-heavy, and encounter that spirit. Sure. It's still there. It's just no longer in the place I used to look. And as someone who is a fan of that website, it, it's just a shame to see the disregard, I think, for it. Um, and, and Lee's no longer writing for the website, it, it should be pointed out. Um, he, he has no involvement with the current site. Still at Rare, just not working on the website. Yeah, st- still, still at Rare. You can still read his writings elsewhere in Sea of Thieves, off Sea of Thieves, but just not on the website. And just to see that, that I don't know, just, just a bland corporate website just is like a thumb in the eye of the Rareware of old man. It's sold out. It got a haircut. There is a lot of, I think this is still a work in progress website that they've got here. But uh, I think the striking thing is repeated throughout, like, it feels like every page in bold letters is the phrase, we create the kind of games the world doesn't have. (laughs) And in my mind, I have to compare that to 
the byline that used to be on Welcome to Rare, it's possible you might know some of our games and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a far cry from Sean Williamson Kong, I'll say that much. Cameron, wh- what are some of the things we we have learned from Rareware the site throughout the years? M- memorable pieces of development trivia or lore in universe lore that we wouldn't have otherwise known well we obviously don't have time to cover it all but like we're only do some back and forth of the things that we specifically remember that stand stand out in our mind I'll, okay i'll let you start okay so um this this is from a response to a scribes uh request because it was mentioned that some of fiddlesworth's innuendos were taken out of grab by the ghoulies so someone asked for a list. <laughs> um so here's the response. I like that I made you um, read this. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um and I'll I'll read the whole first part of the response since this was a two-part letter. I bet you weren't really expecting them, but here they are, direct from the head of the Ghoulies team. Parents, send your impressionable offspring out of the room. Pregnant women and people with heart problems, look away now. After a quick delve in my recycle bin, I managed to unearth Fiddlesworth's shocking profanities for everyone to finally enjoy. Disclaimer, any Microsoft legal folk or gentle souls offended by obscene vegetable and farmyard animal-related quips should read no further. <clears throat> Sow my seeds. Uh, parentheses, stayed until the very last minute. Oh. Caress my cucumber. <laughs> Parentheses stayed for perhaps only one version, funnily enough. This is the one that sticks with me. Manhandle my marrow. <laughs> Parentheses then changed to measure my marrow, but still to no avail. <laughs> Rub my radish. Choke my chicken. Oh, that that yeah. one's a little too blatant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't get away <laughs> with that. Rub my rooster. I mean, really, parentheses. <laughs> something. Parentheses got changed to roast my rooster and was accepted. <laughs> Gobble my gherkin. <laughs> <laughs> uh. We were robbed. We we really and were. And then, uh, wash my lettuce. Parentheses. Though I still don't understand what the problem was with that. It wasn't even particularly funny, let alone risque. I think we learned that lettuce is an actual slang term, and that's why they couldn't use it. Yeah, I think I think it's prison lingo. Um, I, I think it's it's something like uh, toss. Well, it's tossing one salad, and then uh. Peeling one's potatoes. Um, I think did peel my potatoes get in? Was that a fiddle's worth ism? The last line of this says, "Crunch my carrots, pick my plums, and pet my piglet." Almost got thrown out, but managed to stay by the skin of their teeth. Okay, well, thank God we got pet my piglet. Pet my piglet is a really good one. Yeah. Um, one of the things we've learned from Rare's website, was that it was Bumper 
who was the jailed Diddy Kong racer first mentioned by Conker in a live and reloaded press interview. Yeah, we sort of had this like protracted arc where we found out someone was in jail, found out it was Bumper, and then kind of an illusion as to why it was Bumper. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was a whole like multi-year story arc that <laughs> Bumper's um, incarceration where he, he also learned uh, washing one's lettuce and other such phraseology. But yeah, I... You know the, the whole the whole thing with a jail Diddy Kong racer didn't necessarily come from the website. That was again live and reloaded, like press release or something. But um, the fact that it was continued um, on Rare's website, Lee developed it. Th- this whole arc that that Bumper was, was jailed for what's implied to be um, indecent exposure in, in public. This was an answer we got pretty late. I believe this was in Mini Scribes that we found this out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was definitely, I think, in the early days of the modern era of DK Vine, or like the, the post-Donkey Kong Country Returns era DK Vine. There was even a follow-up where like somebody asked, well, why did you say Bumper is in jail? And the explanation was, it's probably safer to say Bumper's in jail than Jago's in a mental hospital or Lupus killed some swans and had to be euthanized. <laughs> it's simply because Bumper is so far down the list of old rare characters in with a chance of a spectacular comeback. I am still hoping that we're going to get Bumper back. Like, I've always said that you know, if we ever get another Conquer game... He's out on parole. But yeah, Bumper should be the Diddy Kong racing character who is incorporated as Conker's tip-top, i.e. the the character who has a supporting NPC role in that franchise. He's the one I can most see, like, having a leap toward being a little bit risque. Well, considering, yeah. (laughs) Considering what's now canon. Um, But yeah, speaking of Diddy Kong racing... Cameron, this is actually um, something that a lot of people don't still know what we're about to bring up that we we actually learned, I think, from Scribes. So people obviously noticed Tiny Kong looked very different in Diddy Kong Racing DS. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, and I think this was a logical thought that, well, obviously Rare did this because they needed a heavyweight character to replace Banjo. And I remember in the back of my fi- my mind, I was dead certain that this was going to be something that like got a logical explanation in the game itself or in the story. Like, oh, like Whizpig like shot a spell when it accidentally did this to Tiny. Like how Drumstick became a frog. Whereas I, I was just thinking that, oh, yeah, this is just rare adding a dose of continuity, uh, like, world-building into Donkey Kong lore. This is, like, even at this late stage, Rare is still continuing to evolve and develop the the Donkey Kong lore, and they're having Tiny go through this growth spurt, and, and they're aging her up just to make her different from Dixie. 
and and it's just rare being rare, you know, rare the same people who killed off Wrinkly Kong. Uh, I, I was just like, this is great. This is great that they're, you know, still putting their thumb on the scales of Donkey Kong. And uh, it turns out, no. Uh, co- according to, uh, I think it was Scribes, Lee explained that it was Nintendo who was responsible for the Tiny Kong redesign. Told them, this is what she looks like now. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they got really an explanation for it either. No, no. But This is... Just what she is now. Yeah, so a lot of people will still credit Rare to to Tiny Kong's aging. And no, it was a Nintendo decision. Rare couldn't make those decisions for the Donkey Kong cast at that point in time. They they were just making Donkey Kong remakes, essentially, um, through 2007. And that was their last one. And, and Nintendo told them, jump. And Rare had to say, how high? Or how high do we make Tiny in this case? Skip and a hop. She can apparently grow in size to suit her mood, too. Right. So um, one of the last also curiosities that I still don't know how widespread is known outside of like the immediate fan community who read Scribes was that uh, Rare was meant at one point to have far more trophies in Super Smash Brothers Melee than we ended up getting. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's really as much detail as we got on that. But it is just a fascinating thing to think about. When you look at the representation of Rare's games, because this was Super Smash Brothers Melee, this is still when Rare was partnered with Nintendo. And the only, like, Donkey Kong characters in there as trophies, aside from Donkey Kong and, and um, I think, like, Donkey Kong Jr., but we got Dixie Kong, and we got King K. Rule, but Diddy wasn't there? You, you've, you've got one, three, and four, and you're missing two. Yeah. In that list. Yeah, it, it was just a bizarre, like, lack of representation for Donkey Kong, let alone things like Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, and it kind of adds to this other, like, there's already a layer of, like, rare stuff, like, kind of quasi on the cutting room floor in melee because we already had the this weirdness where the the motion sensor bomb in the Japanese version of melee is the one from perfect dark not the one from goldeneye mhm and and they credit it as being from perfect dark um i think they even like sloppily edited it out um the european version of Melee launched accidentally name-dropping the Carrington Institute from Perfect Dark. Right, right. And in other releases, they... So there were two Perfect Dark items, the motion sensor bomb and the cloaking device. And in other territories, they changed the motion sensor bomb to the one from Goldeneye, and they obscure the credits for which games they're from with Top Secret. yeah. Which I think is both them being playful and also acknowledging it's a bad idea to name drop Goldeneye. Yeah, right. But uh, yeah, Perfect Perfect Dark is in the credits uh, under Rare's name in all territories still. Yeah, it, it was it was unusual just how like what was it because of like the looming buyout, which at that point was still like a year away. Um, we don't really know, because, yeah, there there are other things in Melee, like uh, rare staffers voicing the Star Fox characters. Or is it even just simply that 
it was much harder to transfer files back and forth in 2000. Well, I mean, we, we saw that as recently as Super Smash Brothers for Nintendo 3DS and Wii U, where Retro didn't have much in the way of Tropical Freeze representation in the game because there was that lack of communication between this Western studio and Sakurai's team. So it, it could have been just as simple as that. So, But yeah, we, we, we learned that, that at one point there was, they did have trophies earmarked for rare stuff in melee and as we've learned recently rare were in deep enough with nintendo to get early builds of ocarina of time right yeah tim stamper getting uh frisky on social media i'm just looking over to our chat to see if anybody uh, mentioned anything they specifically remember and amazing dj dustin uh mentions i remember during the ipod era rare had mp3s you could download including the uncensored Soprano from Live and Reloaded. Oh. Oh, that's right, because they censored it. And uh, that, that that was a controversial thing. How dare they censor Soprano in Live and Reloaded, which originally called Live and Uncut, but obviously it wasn't uncut. But you, you could get the uncensored version on Rare's website. Bef- before we, we start wrapping things up here, we we have to talk about Mr. Pants a little bit more, Cameron, because Mr. Pants is probably the greatest success story of Rare's website. The last 25 years, the biggest star to come out of it is undeniably Mr. Pants. Now, Mr. Pants, of course, is most well-known for starring in It's Mr. Pants, the puzzle game for the Game Boy Advance that was once Donkey Kong Coconut Crackers before uh, evolving into its final state. But Mr. Pants has shown up or been alluded to throughout Rare Games as early as 1999. Just just one year after debuting on Rare's website. Yeah, he kind of... This is a really oddly quick turnaround for this character, I think. Right. In a way that I think would be very confusing to anybody not in on the bit. Right. Now, at at first, like, it, it wasn't Mr. Pants just appearing as a character. He showed up as sort of a, a jokey cheat in Jet Force Gemini. I, I, I know he, like, there's Mr. Pants graffiti in the game. But the thing that's most widely cited is the ants as pants cheat. Mostly cited in that people would bring it up to you trying to make it's Mr. Pants, make Mr. Pants DKU before his time. Or, or yeah, no, wait, we make Jet Force DKU. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to make Jet Force Gemini DKU, even though even though they don't realize that this would then invalidate Mr. Pants DKU status. But yeah, the the ants as pants cheat would basically reskin the ant baddies in Jet Force Gemini as uh, weird polygonal Mr. Pants representations. Um, it's, I still think it's like the most bizarre depiction of Mr. Pants that we've seen because usually, you know, they retain just the the very crude hand drawn style of the the survey page on Rareware, and and this was. Not that it, it was. It, it's flirting with danger to render him in 3D. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You can see why they didn't do it after this. 
But um, yeah, Jet Force Gemini was the first sort of um, time a game acknowledged this character on Rare's website. But it was Banjo-Tooie where he really came alive. And I mean that in as literal a sense as you can in a video game because Mr. Pants showed up as a plausibly real character on Boggy's television screen in Banjo-Tooie, as well as appearing in, as a constellation in the Dodgem Dome in uh, Witchy World. But yeah, uh, Mr. Pants was dancing on Boggy's TV, and because he was also included in the uh, as a character in the credits, uh, it was because um, each uh, staffer had a Banjo-Tooie character uh, put as their sort of middle name. So you know, you would get like Greg Blank Males. Or whatever, but it would be Lee, Mr. Pants, Love Day. And that would be our clue that this character dancing on Boggy's TV was a real guy. And so we hold that Banjo-Tooie is his first canonical appearance as a video game character. Ergo, making Mr. Pants natively DKU, which would become important later on when he would get his own game. I think that... um, the most frequent appearance of Mr. Pants as a Easter egg, as a reference, was grabbed by the Ghoulies, though, because he's all over grabbed by the Ghoulies. He's all over grabbed by the Ghoulies, and just in a very unobscured way, because it's just literally his character art everywhere. Yeah, yeah, just just all strewn about the mansion. I don't, I don't even really know why. I mean, it's a mark of the Baron's insanity that he also, like many of us, just filled his home with a bunch of rare shit. Yeah, right, right. Uh, there, there are references to so much in Grab by the Ghoulies, up to and including Veiled Donkey Kong references. But yeah, Mr. Pants is just everywhere. Um, so Perfect Dark Zero is a game I am not intimately familiar with, but I, uh, he does appear in that as a bot name, right? Yeah, I only know this through Steve because I have not spent a lot of time with Perfect Dark Zero's multiplayer. Um, but Mr. Pants is one of the bot names, and so are several me- members of the extended Mr. Pants cast that has cropped up over the years. Like so Toby. Like Toby, yeah. And Mrs. Pie. Mrs. Pie, his, uh, his mistress, who he uh, sired Toby with. Um, not to be confused with Mr. Pie. Mrs. Pie's husband, who is not the father of Toby. Like I said, we we could do an entire episode on Mr. Pants. And we will. We will. Don't worry. Eventually, we will do the character witness for Mr. Pants. Uh, Viva Pinata. He was referenced quite a bit in Viva Pinata. Yeah, there is an item in Viva Pinata and by extension Trouble in Paradise that is his bowler hat. Yeah. Or rather a mass-produced version of it explicitly. Right, right. Everybody wants to dress like Mr. Pants. He's a fashion icon. He appears in Nuts and Bolts in a couple different ways. Um, One is... I I love this idea for him. Um, There's a Mr. Pants hood ornament, like you would find on like a Rolls Royce or like other (laughs) kind of fancy car, but it's just Mr. Pants with his arms back Uh (laughs) facing forward. Yeah. Along with um, an Xbox disc of It's Mr. Pants in uh, Logbox 720. 
It's a shame they never ported it. Oh, Mr. Pants, it's Mr. Pants could have such a life on like a digital storefronts or phones if it was just given another chance to find more of an audience. I completely agree. I, it's such a good puzzle game. It's the only puzzle game I've ever played to completion. Um, I, I love I love it and its mobile version. I, I've played its mobile version, people. And uh, I remember like all the discs and nuts and bolts would have if you paid attention to where the copyright information would be on a real Xbox disc, it would have some sort of like little gag. Usually pretty self-deprecating. Uh-huh. As was the style of Nuts and Bolts. Right. I, inside I've, and out. I've likened Nuts and Bolts to kind of um, a jazz funeral for, for for Rare as we knew it because they, they there was a lot of gallows humor in Nuts and Bolts. Like, this is it. We're not going to get another game after this. This is the end of the road for all of us, um, which obviously wasn't the case ultimately, but it felt like it at the time for sure. <laughs> yeah, the the joke on the Mister Pants disc was about uh, like the rare, the rare website mascot got his own video game. It's highly unlikely he'll get another. I'm par- I'm paraphrasing there, but right, right. No, it's it sounds pretty accurate. Here, Steve just gave me the the exact quote. Thank you, Rare Gamer. <laughs> um, our website mascot that somehow managed to get his own vi- his own game. It's highly doubtful he'll get another. Yeah, it's even it's even more pithy than I thought it was. And um, did he show up anywhere in Rare Replay? He did um, in like a very secretive sort of way. So there's a featurette on Rare Re- in Rare Replay where they highlight some of the people who have done voices in Rare games over the years, like having Steve Steve Malpass show up for a little bit and make Mister Ribs noises. Uh-huh. And, uh And there is a. Kind of, kind of secret tag at the end of the video because it's after like the logo is shown up and you're expecting the video is just going to end and put you back to the menu. Instead, it highlights Mr. Pants. Considering, you know, it's Mr. Pants would have been perfect for Rare Replay, but they didn't have any of the handheld games in there. It's nice that they found a way to get them in. And of course, they did do a video feature on it's mr pants on their youtube channel in the style of the rare replay documentaries after the fact but yeah it's it's how we found out uh john silk did his voice um aka general scales yeah when we always thought shabunga and mr pants had the same voice actor not true not true and of course he got his own game yeah right right (laughs) all right cameron um we do have Two calls to take for this episode. Spoiler alert, they're both from the same caller. So we'll play them back to back. And then we'll give our final thoughts, for now at least, on Rareware, the website, and the legacy it has left. Aside from, you know, Mr. Pants. Hey, DK Vine. It's Steve from Rare Gamer. Um, yeah, so I'm really happy that you're doing a kind of commemorative anniversary episode on Rareware.com because I think for a lot of us, especially with, like, fan sites, we used and stole so much from that site for, like, the humor that we use, for, like, the features that we have on our own website, even stuff to navigation, um, because it was so inspiring back in the day to, to go on to Rareware and be like, oh, my God, the 
the writing is brilliant, the screenshots are here, the videos are there, we can, like, watch this, we can do this, we can interact this way, you know, all the rumor mill stuff, all the scribes, you know, all the tepid seats, like, it, we wasted hours on that website, and every single second was worth it, you know? So, just to see us kind of acknowledging it, going like, wow, it's 25 years ago, you know? Just looking back, it's extremely nostalgic, and I'm sure that many people calling in are going to are gonna share those nostalgic memories, and they're well warranted. I mean, Lee Loveday, genius, you know what I mean? Like, he should be held up in a lot higher regard in terms of, like, the writing style and stuff that he did, because we're all shamelessly copying him <laughs> at every step, just trying to, like, almost echo his voice to do, you know, our own kind of witty responses to things like that. But I think the thing I'm going to focus on, just to make me a little different and to kind of, you know, show my own history on what I took away from Rareware, is a bygone era of secret web pages, um, specifically the super secret bovine bonus. And I know for a lot of people that kind of grew up with the social media age, secret websites are totally a thing of the – or secret pages on websites total thing in the past. Nobody does them anymore. And it could be like security stuff or just a general lack of creativity. But you would have a website that just had a page that could not be found through traditional means. You couldn't Google it. You couldn't go through any searches like that. You just had like a pixel on a page that was hidden. And by going to that page and clicking on it, it would redirect you to a secret page that would announce, you know, hey, you found it. You've invested enough time. You've you've done something really secret. Um, There was actually a website called David Wan's Unique Video Game Glitches. And I know I'm, I'm aging myself by bringing that up, but it was a cool website that uh, it showed off different ways that you could do video game glitches way back in the 90s and early 2000s. And he had a, another secret page in his website that you could click through. And, like, he almost held a sort of contest for it where he's like, hey, if you can find the page, I'll add you to, like, the name at the top of my site. And it just made that kind of engagement a little more interesting when you were just viewing it after school going, oh, I'm going to find the secret page today. I'm going to really look for it. I'm going to try and find it. So Lee Loveday did something similar with, with Rareware um, with a page that couldn't be found, but he used that page as a way to hold contests. So if you're dedicated enough and invested enough in Rareware to find the page, you would have the option to earn some really cool Rare swag. And that popped up in a lot of different iterations of the Rare site, whether it was, you know, secret little Banjo-Tooie, you know, yellow shorts you could get from, like, solving a... Hey, DK Vine, it's Steve from Rare Gamer with a second attempt at this message because I prattled on way too long last time. When you get dorks like us talking about this stuff, we can go for hours. So anyway, I'll cut to the chase... uh, Rareware used to have a website or a page on their website called the Super Secret Bovine Bonus. It was a hidden website. I'll leave out how you get to it. Maybe you want to discuss that on the show. But by clicking on it, you get to a secret contest page that would allow you to win, win rare swag by, like, emailing Lee and answering a very specific question. But the idea that you can go through the website and find this hidden feature that not everybody could find, and the fact that it, it's preserved now, on the Wayback Machine. So if anybody's interested in discovering it today, you can totally go through the Wayback Machine and find it for yourself. I'll give you a hint. Killer Instinct Gold. That's all I'm going to say, which is probably too much anyway. But, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that. You know, uh, rare, rare the fact that it's 25 years old now is amazing. Uh, I can't believe as much time has gone by as it has. I remember dialing up. I remember connecting. I'm old as hell, as <laughs> we all are. But, yeah, it, it's part of rare fandom that I hope doesn't, ever be forgotten you know it, it was fantastic good way to waste teenage years adult years everything thanks for, for doing this episode it's fantastic thanks guys well thank you for the call steve from off of rare gamer who we've already mentioned quite a few times you are the sean williamson of this podcast 
Leave it to Steve to bring up a rare cow that I had completely neglected to mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, people don't really do this whole, like, secret page stuff anymore. Like, for example, finding the missing episode of The Conversation Season 6. Somewhere out there is an episode of The Conversation that nobody outside of the staff and our friends have heard. Where could it be? How can you find it? To find I'm out, starting to realize why people don't do this anymore. Search for the clues throughout the conversation six season. Each episode contains a piece of the puzzle. If you can figure it out, it will lead you to where the episode is hidden. Be the first to at us on Twitter or or whatever replaces Twitter in the future with where the episode is at, and you can win. Fabulous prizes like listening to the episode first and an autographed copy of Sea of Thieves number one. Where is the missing episode of the conversation? It's up to you to find out. Cameron? Yeah, I'll just let people... Should I just tell people how to get to the bovine bonus page? Because I don't think... At at this point, you know, the the Wayback Machine is being um, litigated in court. Who knows how how much longer it will be up? So maybe we just tell people how to do it before it's gone forever. So um, as we sort of touched on when I mentioned the Simon minigame, Rare did like hold a bunch of contests on their website where you could win stuff. Um, It's even how we have that Banjo-Tooie character collage on our site because Chad won a Banjo-Tooie contest and scanned it in. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, this is extremely funny. I had to refresh my memory how to find the the bovine bonus page or honestly maybe just find out for the first time because i sure don't remember getting to it yeah and uh it's a forum post on rare witch project uh describing that you get to it by way of going to the killer instinct gold page on rareware uh Clicking the golden dot in the navigation bar between recent and affairs. And you will reach the secret bovine bonus page. And the poster of that post is Laraco, <laughs> the username of Steve from Rare Gamer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you played yourself, Steve. I'm sorry. He he's been obsessed with this for a long, long time. And yeah, it's a it's a secret page with a photo a photo of a cow with a speech bubble saying "Well, hey." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, de- describing yes, you've made it. It was going to be in Blast Core, but a combination of deadlines and limited storage and the lead artist refusing to draw some cows soon knit that idea in the bud. So now it's here, and it's great. The official rare wear super secret bovine bonus. <laughs> of course, rare cows would become a reoccurring thing by the handheld team then, uh, starting with Donkey Kong. Was Donkey Kong Country for the Game Boy Color, or or was it... I think, I think that, Pocket Tales might have been the, the first po- one, because yes, yes. in that one, the cow was meant to be a real representation of a cow right and then after that it started getting a little bit more abstract right well cameron it's time to wrap things up because we have gone on far longer than i anticipated we would 
about this damned website. I, I couldn't I couldn't be brief enough to write into <laughs> write into scribes. Which is weird because Rareware is mostly known for its briefs. I guess to to give my kind of final thoughts on just the totality of Rare's web presence. I I related this on the buyout episode and I touched on it earlier, but I feel like I have to single-handedly credit Rare's web presence and its unique voice for why I am still a Rare fan and stayed a Rare fan um, after 2002. I, as I said, I hitched my wagon to the GameCube. I wasn't able to play a lot of their console out for, output for a good, good few years. And, uh, I mean, you'll remember it well, Heil. We've, we've talked about it before. Um, the the mid-2000s was not a pleasant time to be online, and that was felt especially um, if you were a fan of Rare. It was a very cynical, caustic time, It was a spe- and uh, that wasn't a good time to also, um, amid a lot of, like, toxic, like, console fanboy warring and a lot of ju- just inclination to poke bears um for this massive shakeup buyout to have happened um with a lot of a lot of manufactured narratives kind of becoming the public consensus where the relationships between video game companies were treated like soap opera dramas and companies themselves were kind of treated as monoliths onto themselves like not really on an individual not not reflective of the individuals that made them up. Uh-huh. And this is how you get to the flying accusation that, oh, some people left Rare to form Free Radical. I guess all the good people left. Right. But this detached, self-deprecating, sarcastic, yet paradoxically reverent voice on Rare's website, and just its myriad of trivia, funny commentary, comprehensive write-ups, and uh, pretty artwork with silly jokes buried underneath it. It gave me a really nice way to stay engaged with Rare beyond just playing their games. And importantly, it was this massively humanizing element for the studio and I think it gave me in my early teens a lot more perspective on the reality of the world and not (laughs) as it existed in the minds of 14 year olds on forums sure and just showing this this engagement that proved that people there in the trenches at a company could could engage with their audience in a way that didn't feel extremely calculated, but just very, very honest. Yeah. And charming. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. And, you know, Rareware, the website, it it, it is sadly gone. It, it is, you know, evolved into something else as we had said but 
It's not something I really actively mourn, either. Like, not like I saw the Donkey Kong Racing trailer and I will forever mourn not getting that game. Partially because it was a drawn-out process. It, it wasn't like this sudden shock of the buyout where all of a sudden, hey, you're not getting Donkey Kong Racing. Um, th- there was a slow death by a thousand cuts that intertwined Bo- with Boiled just- Winky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just the reality of the independent video game studio rare being purchased by a major corporation and the way the internet evolved over the course of 25 years and this is not me blaming microsoft either because what corporation is going to want to spend the time and resources on a website with such a unique voice in this day and age not when there are bigger fish to fry bigger ways to reach the public. I mean, even DK Vine, it's not just a website anymore. We're a podcast, we're a Twitch channel, YouTube, social media. I mean, we're not just confined to the website. So I I get it. I get it. It's just a shame because at its strongest, as we've said, Rareware the site was a repository of history on the studio. And it was a thrilling examination of what was new and a saucy little preview of what was to come. It was a place for fans of the studio to become fanatics, and it was done by not talking down to them. That's my biggest thing. That was my biggest thing as a kid, right? You're talking down to me. I said not to buy Dr. Seuss for the graduates. That's because I always felt like Dr. Dr. Seuss was patronizing. It was, it was treating me like I was just a kid. Lee Loveday, for as bright and esoteric as he could get, never really talked down to you. He always just joked with you, like you were on his level. And that always just stuck with me. His irreverent, dryly sarcastic voice was also just ahead of its time. I would say by a good 20 years, long before the rise of the wacky brand managers on social media... You had Lee Loveday doing that for Rare, pioneering that voice. And how important was Lee in shaping our fandom and making that impression on us? So throughout the darkest days of that post-nuts-and-bolts pre-Rare replay era of Rare, I often remarked that as long as Lee was still at Rare, I would still believe in Rare as a studio. Yeah, I, I would put Lee Loveday over people like Greg Mails at the time because that's how much Lee Loveday and his writing meant to me as a fan of not only him but of Rare itself. And, you know, Greg Mails is one of the main driving forces behind most of my favorite games. So I think that just speaks to how powerful Lee Loveday's words were to a young Heil Russell and to everyone else at DK Vine and everyone in the Rare fan community who were around during that era or a little bit after that era. And, and you know, maybe it's just because game development is something I've never had a personal interest in as something I wanted to pursue. But writing about games, writing for games even, yeah, that that's something I understood and, and kind of had a drive to pursue. So... I, th- I think that's why he always just stood out. 
And while Lee has been active on Twitter, you know, he, he he's kind of a famous recluse. I know Ben and Chad would often correspond with him, like, off scribes. But I always felt awkward about pestering him. Or, or any rare staff, really. Because, I don't know, maybe that's my social anxiety, but from my point of view, I just didn't want to bother any of these people I really respect. Oh, no, I... I totally understand. It's one of my biggest, like, debilitating men- mental hangups where I feel like one of the worst things I can do is be a bother to someone. Yes, exactly. And part of that was my mom scolding me as a child for being in people's way, like in the grocery store. Oh, I'm sorry he's in your way. And she would, like, pull on my arm and, like, move me. And and I think that gave me some sort of complex in my life where now when I'm in a grocery store, I have a panic attack. Thanks, mom. You're not getting a Mother's Day card this year. So, yeah, I like I, I, I always just kept a respectful distance, at least in my head, what was respectful. O- only using like the, the built in avenue of scribes as my way of like indulging that. And that being said... I actually got to meet him in May 2016 when I had the privilege of visiting Rare. And you think that would be surreal. That would be like this uh, like life-altering moment to finally meet him. But it was actually perfectly casual. You know, we were just hanging out in a pub and in walks Lee Loveday through the door. And I'm like, oh, it's Lee Loveday. And he was actually very just normal to talk to, and it, it wasn't weird at all. And and we sat next to each other in an Italian restaurant, and uh, yeah, like it was just, it was just wonderful to getting to talk to him. And I, I will always cherish that memory because how often do you get to meet your heroes, and how often does it go well? You know, so the the fact that like Lee never you know went out to E three or did any of that, and I still got the chance to to spend a little bit of time with him, like my my personal writing hero. Just uh, I I can't be I, like I'm I'm getting misty eyed just talking about it because it just hits me like how fortunate I was. But um, you know, the 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 spirit of rareware still stays with inside of us and that's partially why I don't mourn it because I feel like I sort of carry that flame around inside of me as I know you do as well Cameron as I know Steve does all, all of us like all of us like consciously or not are just so inseparably influenced by this website right right it does really make me want discussing all of this it really makes me want to clean up DK Vine's back pages a little bit. I wish I had the time to do so because I really want to create a valuable resource much in the same way that Rareware, the site used to be. Um, Patreon. <laughs> yes, Patreon. Oh, what would give me the time to finally do that? <laughs> Patreon. Um, and, and yeah, like it, it really just makes me want to like make DK Vine a more kick-ass site. Just Still chasing Lee's shadow 25 years later. I mean, ultimately, that's all my life's going to amount to is trying to be as good as this website that I read back in 1998. But Cameron, I do have a confession to make. Uh, The first time I'm publicly making this confession. So a few months ago, I was reflecting on this year being the 25th anniversary of Rareware, the site. And 
I don't know, I was getting wistful, I was getting nostalgic, as I often do. Not because of the passage of time, but because, you know, Lee Loveday's legacy, I don't want it to be forgotten. And obviously we will never forget it. DK Vine will never forget it. But it has been an entire human generation since he launched Rareware, the website. And, you know, I I, I don't want it to be forgotten. Uh, I don't want it to be forgotten and disregarded when it comes to the history of Rare. The, the annals of Rare history. I want this to be just as cherished as some of their games. So, a light bulb went off in my head, not too dissimilar from Mr. Pants' robotic sidekick Helpo, as seen in It's Mr. Pants. Because I knew that for several years, Microsoft did own, still owned, the URL rareware.com, with the H, Rareware, W-A-R-E dot com, obviously redirects to rare.co.uk still. Rareware, W-H-E-R-E dot com, did for the longest time, at least through the Connect Sports era. You know, if the powers that be cared so little for that, I, I, I was wondering, and I checked, and they had let it lapse, Cameron. So I bought it. That's right. <laughs> I now own rareware.com. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Right now, it just re- redirects to DK Vine. But, you know, if Microsoft or, or the higher-ups at Rare don't want it, I couldn't, in good conscience, ever let it fall into anybody else's hands. Like, it means too much. So, ideally, you know, I, I would at some point like to set up a tribute page to Lee's work on DK Vine and have it redirect to there. Um, but at least for now, it's safe. In honor of that and this episode, <laughs> I have created a new rotating slogan on DKVine.com or rareware.com, if you wish. So now, whenever you go to our website, there is a randomized chance you will be greeted with the message. Thank Thank you you for for your interest in Rare. This has been a File 2 production. Terrico.